It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hi, this is the machine. Uh, uh, hello. How are you, Mr. Freed? Oh, yeah, I have both names down, Stephen and Jason, and I am fine, thank you. Good. And I'm ready to talk with you about uh, my old buddy, Stanley Kubrick. Hey, everybody. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us in Kubrick's Universe. Today, we have a very special tribute show for you. You know, as time goes by, we lose some of the amazingly talented people who worked with Stanley during his film career. And we recently lost composer and conductor Gerald Freed, February 17th, 2023, to be precise. He was the grand old age of 95. We spoke to Gerald in late 2018 when he was just 90 years young. He was one of the earliest collaborators with Stanley Kubrick, dating back to the very early 1950s. Gerald Freed, a native New Yorker, had scored almost 300 films and TV shows in a career spanning over 70 years. His movie scores include such varied titles as Machine Gun Kelly for Roger Corman, Jack Nicholson's first feature film, The Crybaby Killer, The Killing of Sister George, Too Late the Hero, and The Grissom Gang, all three for director Robert Aldrich. His TV credits include some of the most popular shows being produced at that time, including M-Squad, Wagon Train, Gunsmoke, Gilligan's Island, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., Mission Impossible, Lost in Space, Policewoman, and Star Trek. He was nominated for an Oscar for Best Music with an Original Dramatic Score for the feature-length documentary Birds Do It, Bees Do It at the 1976 Academy Awards. He was up against several other notable composers with memorable scores that year, including The Wind and the Lion from Jerry Goldsmith, Jack Nietzsche's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Bite the Bullet by Alex North, also an early Kubrick collaborator, and the winner that year was John Williams for probably the most famous movie score of all time, Jaws. So suffice it to say, Jerry was in great company that night. Gerald Freed also won an Emmy for his work with the legendary producer Quincy Jones on the groundbreaking miniseries Roots from 1977. Having composed the scores for five of Stanley Kubrick's earliest films, Gerald is one of Kubrick's most frequent collaborators. Freed and Kubrick first worked together as a composer and director partnership, both at the age of just 23, on the short film Day of the Fight back in 1951, which was followed by four feature films, Fear and Desire, Killer's Kiss, The Killing, and Paths of Glory. Now, we released about 30 minutes of this interview back in January 2020, but we now present to you the entire three-hour interview in honor and respect of the late great Mr. Gerald Freed. 
It's a real honor to have you speaking with us, Gerald. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? Fine, and uh, I congratulate you on getting all the statistics correct. <laughs> Thank you. Off to a off to a, a, a decent start and in an auspicious beginning, shall we say? Yeah. Okay, great. Well, so obviously, you and Stanley were both born in the Bronx and within a few months of each other. But when did you two first come in contact with each other? We were brought together by Alexander Singer, who has a, a good uh, background of winning awards as a director. He was interested in movies, and Stanley, as a Look magazine photographer, became interested in movies, I think primarily because of Alex's passion for movies. And uh, that's also true of me, and perhaps even... Do you know the name Paul Mazursky, the director, writer? Oh, of course, of course. He was part of that Greenwich Village bunch of uh, bright people. And Alex may have brought him into the uh, movie world, or at least got us interested in it. Hmm. Anyway, uh, Stanley asked me uh, to do the music for his first movie, The Short Day of the Fight, as you probably know. So, And with... then Stanley and I became friends... Um, uh, uh, besides, in addition to that, in fact, Stanley actually babysat for my firstborn at one time. Oh, you you got to be kidding me. Tell us no. about that. Tell us about that. Um, well, just, well, you know, um, your early we years were, together. Uh, what I think what Stanley uh, was interested in me as a friend, I, I was a, a, a musician compared to those smart Greenwich Village intellectuals. I wasn't very educated, but what I think he liked in me was the fact that I combined a professional career with being sort of what he would call, and what did call, a regular person. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, my credentials in that capacity were dramatized by me having a child at the age of 22. My gosh. Wow. An artist, somebody in music who actually is a family man. Hmm. In addition to that, he found out that I was in a club called the Barracudas in the Bronx, and we had a softball team, and he wanted very much to play a game of softball, like, um, to use his phrase, like a regular guy. Mm -hmm. So I mm -hmm. got him a game with the Barracudas. We put him in right field, and he did okay. He made a couple of catches. But I think the, the point of the story is was that for all his brilliance and and... It was hard for him to be with regular people who were so much smarter and more sensitive, more introspective than we were. But he wanted to be a regular person, and he felt he accomplished that by playing softball with the Barracudas. <laughs> That's great. And you say he played right, huh? He played right field? Played right field, yeah. And he made his catches. No errors. Um, well, uh, <laughs> he caught two and dropped one. Okay. That's not bad. No, you know the saying, two out of three. Well, in baseball, that still means he was, shall we say, catching 666, which is a high average. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, one thing, uh, while we were talking about uh, him babysitting, uh, I'd like to add one uh, uh, corollary to that story. Do you remember the movie The Killing, the, uh, the name of the jockey? who was shot, whose horse was shot in the killing. 
Do I remember the character's name or the actor's name? The character's name. Ooh, can't, uh, can't remember. But the character's name was the name of my son, Daniel Freed. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a special news bulletin. In one of the most daring and methodically executed holdups in criminal history, a lone bandit wearing a rubber mask today took an estimated $2 million stuffed into a large duffel bag from the offices of the Lansdowne Racetrack. The robbery occurred during the running of the seventh race and was apparently timed to coincide with the shooting of red lightning, just as the horse, valued at a quarter of a million dollars, was leading the pack at the far turn. The jockey, Danny Freed, escaped with minor injuries. A man identified as Nicky Arano, who allegedly shot the prize thoroughbred, was himself fatally wounded by track police as he attempted to shoot his way out of the track parking lot. At this time, the most baffling mystery that still plagues the authorities is just how the bandit managed to successfully get away from the track with a bulky duffel bag containing the money. A painstaking search of the track grounds is being conducted on the theory that the money may still be hidden there. And now we take you back to our regularly scheduled program. Reason for a namely thought, uh, just, just for the heck of it, having met Daniel at the age of two, he named wow. Jackie Daniel Freed. Just, just a fun corollary to the story. <laughs> that's that's well, wow, that's cool. But that's not unlike stuff that Stanley was uh, doing, using his friends and and family, particularly uh, in various uh, roles on the on the films that he made. And Ruth Sabatka comes to mind. Tell tell us about uh, your memories of of them together, if you can. Uh, yes, they seemed well-suited. Um, I knew Stanley's first wife, Toba, mm-hmm. and um, Stanley, for all his uh, discomfort with being regular and wishes to be considered a regular guy, um, nevertheless managed to marry the prettiest girl in high school, Toba. <laughs> yeah. That sort of taught us something that Stanley had something going for him. Right, right. He had that charisma. Apparently, yeah, and uh, we, we we picked it up after a while, <laughs> but you know we we're under pressure to be regular people, and uh, Stanley was not regular, even though <laughs> for very good reason, and uh, mm-hmm. his so-called irregularity certainly paid off in a magnificent career. He seemed to be quite suitably married, and uh, she was kind of a star. She was both a dancer and the a set and costume designer for, I believe it was City Center when George Balanchine was there. Mm-hmm. And they seemed perfectly made it, you know, in, in terms of personality and accomplishment. And and physically, they were both kind of good looking. Mm. Well, the, and she was, uh, you know, apparently the young sophisticat and uh, was uh, integral in... Uh, bringing Stanley to the, the Greenwich Village scene and introducing him to a lot of the, the early beat poets and uh, such and people involved in the art scene at that time, at least according to, uh, you know, what we know from speaking with Vincent Labruto, who wrote, you know, arguably the definitive biography on Stanley. And uh, so we were just curious of what uh, interactions you had, like what, what your memories were of uh, your time just hanging out with uh, Stanley and Ruth. But it sounds to me like you, you say they were happy. Seems to be quite happy. And when I was in uh, Germany scoring Paths of Glory, I had dinner with both of them just about every night. Stanley, for all his brilliance, was a good friend and kind of a, 
a nice guy to use the Bronx vernacular. Yeah, a nice guy. Exactly. Well, um, well there's other things too, you know. Um, uh, he was kind of compulsive about the, his work and control, but then again, that's required of a producer director. Sure, of course. Having that singular, you know, vision, so to speak, but also being malleable. I th- I think that comes from you know being a a northeasterner, if I may. But I, I don't want to be presumptuous. And now, you know, I just wanted to touch upon the Bronx and see if James is in on the call because uh, James Marinaccio, our good friend and researcher, he's uh, born and raised in the Bronx as well. And I know he had a question for you about uh, uh, your time in the neighborhood. Are you there, James? I'm here. Uh, yeah. yeah. What neighborhood are you from in the Bronx? Oh, I moved around, but I grew up first around the Gun Hill Road, Pelham Parkway area. Yeah, I was up there at Kingsbridge Road. You were more on the, like, over near Jerome and on the west side a little bit more in the Grand Concourse. Where, yes. Oh, like, you were over were near Evander Childs High School then. Oh, my goodness. That's where I went. I went to Evander Childs. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Did you happen to live in one of those uh, garment workers' big buildings, like what they used to call the Coops or the Amalgamated Building? No, but a lot of my friends did. I lived in little, uh, little like two-family houses. We moved around, like like Kubrick. Uh, he moved a lot he, in the Bronx, and then when he went to Manhattan, I put together a little film recently, put it on YouTube, because me and Jason, uh, at different times, took video of the addresses that we got from the Vincent Labruto biography. And we put, we took some video of the, of the addresses and put it together. And he, he moved so much. Yeah. One time he moved two doors down. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I didn't know him in the Bronx days, even though okay. we're both from the Bronx. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So yeah. you spent more time when he was down in Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He and Toba had a, Little apartment up on Fourth Street or Sixth Street or one of the Greenwich Village Sixteenth yeah, or ten, one time or tenth at another yeah. time. Yeah, somewhere around there. Well, you mentioned about uh, you know Stanley just wanting to be like a regular guy, and um, you know we know that he was very close with his family, and uh, I'm just wondering if you remember uh, ever meeting Stanley's parents and his sister Barbara Mary. Yes. What what are your what are your memories of them? Uh, Stanley's parents uh, were they. My parents and most of the people I knew in the Bronx were we were first generation. Our parents were all born in the old country. Mm-hmm. Stanley's parents may have been I don't even know, but they did not look like that. They were trim and upright and handsome, and his mother was quite attractive. Mm. And that's my impression of them. And he was a doctor, which mm-hmm. isn't unusual for you know first or second generation uh, Eastern Europeans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they had kind of a a, a style which uh, my parents and people I knew did not have, and I'm not sure how that affected him. Uh, but it obviously did. But I. I didn't know them well enough to know anything of their dynamics, except uh, they were kind of good-looking and comfortable with the world. Mm. That's interesting. That's a that's a very unique take on it. Is comfortable with the world. I'm going to remember that. 
Yeah, like maybe that. only in uh, comparison to my own parents and the parents <laughs> of the other people I grew up Yeah, we all have that frame of reference of uh, seeing yeah. life initially through the eyes of our own parents. That's well said. And I remember his sister being uh, not quite comfortable in her own skin. Oh, interesting. Well, I want to skip ahead because uh, your son Joshua mentioned something about this. And I, I'm not familiar with this, so I'm just going to phrase the question as, uh, as, as best as I have it presented to me. Um, but Stephen was wondering, it has to do something about a tennis court reservation uh, proving paranoia. Does this sound <laughs> okay? Well, I'm, in the, I'm in the dark here. Help me out, sir. Okay, yeah, that, that, uh, so we, uh, we played tennis both in Central Park and in the Riverside Drive courts. And uh, there was once in, we were waiting for a Central Park court. And uh, I'll tie this story with something else that happened uh, on a production meeting of The Killing. But first, I'll finish the tennis story. And Stanley saw some people hanging around there. Of, of, we were in line waiting for a court. And uh, he said, we better move up fast because those two people are over there, they look like they want the court, and I don't want to be in a position where, you know, we'll, they come and cut in front of us and get the court and we can't play tennis and they have to go home. And I said, Stanley, um, I, I didn't know if I understood the word paranoia at that time. We were still in 21, 22 years old. Mm-hmm. But I said, Stanley, please, I, just, I can't. Beat yourself like that. Forget it. Just relax. <laughs> and exactly what he predicted did happen. Mm. Uh, they did cut in front of us, and before we could interrupt, they got the court, and Stanley and I went home without playing tennis oh. that day. Oh, man. The thing I want to tie that in with was on the set of the killing, there was a, a pre production meeting. Uh, I don't know the circumstances, but a lot of the people who were working on the picture were there, and Stanley looked around. And he said, not prompted by me, I don't know what prompted him, he said, he pointed somebody and said, he is going to fuck up. He's not going to finish the picture. <laughs> and he poked it to somebody else and said, he's going to finish the picture, but uh, he's so self-involved, he's not going to do a good job. <laughs> and once again, I looked at Sammy and he said, come on, man, don't give me this paranoia shit. And he's over the, like I said, I didn't know the words. And, well, maybe right. by the age of 22, I did. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Wow. And uh, that's perhaps one of the reasons he was such a master movie maker. Uh, he anticipated problems. He, he read yes. his magnificently. Yeah, yeah. I get that. I get exactly what you're saying there and how you frame it. That's brilliant. Let me ask you, Gerald, um, uh, just for our listeners' curiosity, I'm wondering why it is that you came uh, to score the first five Kubrick films and none thereafter. (laughs) Thank you for asking. Uh, That's because I think Kubrick produced and directed his pictures like a master chef. He wanted to control all the ingredients, so much so like in Passive Glory, I was told he actually heard, auditioned all the machine gun shots in the battle field, heard <laughs> each one individually. That's hundreds of sound effects. Oh, yeah. It's that important to him, and that's maybe one of the reasons he's Stanley Kubrick, you know, one mm-hmm. of the most honored directors of all time. Mm-hmm. And I think 
uh, he couldn't really put the music into the master chef mix because you really can't get the feel of the music till you, you hear the orchestra. Mm. And by that time, uh, the recordings, the musicians were so expensive that he was not in a position to redo it if he didn't like it. Mm-hmm. I think um, it was much safer for him to hear pre-recorded music. Also, it was an opportunity to show how clever he is and the, you know, the marvelous use of that pre-recorded <laughs> music. You know, the Zarathustra, the Blue Danube. Mm-hmm. That was kind of brilliant. Uh, but I think in addition to that, he knew it and could deal with it and put it into uh, the ingredients as a master chef. And whereas with the uh, music hasn't heard yet, he could not do that. And this may be uh, an alibi for me, like <laughs> maybe two more reasons, um, uh, neither of one which I believe are true, but I like telling this. I was so good, I could not be replaced by a living composer. <laughs> or, or I was so bad that he lost faith in living composers. Like oh, I, my gosh. Either one is true, but I like telling that. Bo- and both are hilarious. <laughs> but they're, those are really funny, like, personal takes that no one else but you has. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> also, perhaps one of the reasons that Pass of Glory was primarily an all-percussion score was because Stanley, in his high school orchestra, was a drummer. Well, we're going to get to that. Of course I do. I'm a lifelong drummer myself, Gerald. And I have to ask you, because as we know, um, you know, uh, your primary instrument was the oboe and Stanley's was the drums. So did did you guys ever play together? I think we once started fooling around. He had some Latin instruments, so of oboe and especially English horn, which is, you know, is a big brother of the oboe. Mm-hmm. Sounds good on Latino music. So I play some things, and he improvised something on a, a guiro or maracas or one of those uh, Latino instruments. Yeah, we actually did ones. As, as I understand it, I mean, uh, Stanley was not just like an ordinary timekeeping drummer that he actually had the feel and he could uh, he could swing. And I, I would give anything to be able to hear a recording of Stanley playing drums, even just like a 30 or 60 second sound bite. But uh, so far, it's been a dead end. He played percussion with the high school symphony orchestra. Mm-hmm. You know, traps, timpani, cymbals like that. I do not know anything about Stanley on sit-down drums, but I like the story. So uh, forget about the truth, if you would, and I'll go with your story that I jammed with him. (laughs) (laughs) Except for those few Latino instrument things. Well, that's that's still a jam. But, uh, no, I have seen... We have seen a photo of Stanley's drum kit, uh, the one that he had in his uh, home at at, at Chittickbury. So we know that at least towards the end of his life. And yeah, and I'm pretty sure, according to Vincent Labruto's book, that he played uh, in a jazz combo uh, for some time anyway, when he was either, you know, late in high school or in the early years right after I'm high school. I'm going to revise my story to include myself in that. Uh, the truth is I never did jam with him with jazz. But he was, as you know, a chess fanatic, and he played chess. Uh, when he was living in the village in Washington Square, and there were innumerable percussion groups scattered all around Washington Square. Well, that he played with one of those. 
And uh, I'd love to lie and say I joined in. In fact, in my next interview, I may have uh, talked myself into lying. No, that's okay. Uh, am I allowed to interject a please, story? Please, please. Do. Okay. Uh, I did some of the Gilligan's Island. In fact, I did it uh, off and on three years of Gilligan's Island. One of the sessions was where they had to uh, provide music so Ginger could sing, and they had no instruments there. So they had to make instruments out of shells and pots and pans and mm -hmm. empty logs and things like that. And I had to reproduce the sounds myself, you know, for the uh, soundtrack, sure. improvising instruments, old pots and pans and cans. And that was fun and uh, challenging, too. So I had my share of playing drunk instruments. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, it's also there, like you're doing a hybrid of musical scoring and Foley work, so to speak. Yes, exactly. <laughs> How cool. Well, all right, let me uh, toggle back uh, just a bit to, uh, you know, some of your uh, early days in, uh, in the Bronx. And, you know, we have to assume that none of you guys had a car back then. So how did you, uh, as you Bronxites would say, uh, get into the city? You know, uh, how did you get to downtown Manhattan? Uh, were, the, were you primarily taking buses or, or the subway, like nope. the four line, the D? The, the, the D, which is in, was called the IND, just uh, independent, and the uh, IRT. Mm -hmm. uh, and yes, and uh, did you know Stanley did a story for Look Magazine about a band traveling home late on the subway? I think so. I have seen. Yeah. Have oh, we seen yeah. it? That was my band. I was in that picture. Oh, my gosh. We have to look that up again. I yeah, remember I mean, pictures in the lower... where people are kissing and being passionate or something. I don't remember people playing music. It's probably the same, same set. Uh, I think he's saying they were just we traveling home. We weren't playing. We were sleeping. He, he wanted us falling asleep. Oh, uh, so we... yeah, I think I've seen that, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So, and you must have taken the 3rd Avenue L, obviously, the elevated train. Yeah, yeah. And I remember I when I was a little kid, I remember the 3rd Avenue L, and it was uh, decommissioned, and they were tearing it down. Oh, right, right. Uh, so, My brother had a girlfriend who lived on the fifth floor across from Yankee Stadium, so we got to watch the games free. Oh, man, that's great. Like yeah, she was a very popular girl. <laughs> <laughs> In what way? <laughs> also pretty, as well as having a free view. Anyway, yeah. didn't want to about my brother's girlfriends, I assume. But as we know, you know, Stanley loved to go to the movies at the RKO Fordham and the Lowy's Paradise Theater. Right. And, uh, you know, there are also many long-forgotten one-off theaters in and around that area where you guys lived. Um, because, of course, you know, multiplexes, as they're now called, or multiple screen theaters, didn't really come into existence until the late 70s. Do you have uh, memories of going to see movies with Stanley or any particular movie memories of your own? We went uh, to a lot of movies. Uh, and uh, there were some bad movies. And I sort of asked him, well, why do you want to see these? He says, you could learn, you could learn even better from bad movies. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's see, in, in Germany, we, we went maybe three or four nights a week to a movie. 
And in New York, uh, we did a lot, too. Yeah. And it was fun with him because his conversations after, you know, he would say, yeah, did you see how they uh, used that fence there to blend in with this guy's necktie in a slow dissolve? You know, things that I never noticed, but uh, mm. Stanley, of course, did. I do recall, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but some someone said that, that, that Stanley had said that he absorbed all manner of film, good and bad, particularly, as you pointed out, with him learning from bad films that there there was apparently one afternoon he came out of a theater and said, well, I, if I could get my hands on some equipment, I know I can't possibly make a worse film than what we just saw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he did learn. I, I think that's a great story. It, it's so telling about him. Yeah. Do you remember roughly how many times you guys would go to the movies during that time? 20, 30 times, lots of movies. Sure. And how much was a ticket then, Gerald? I think they started at something like 25 cents. (laughs) That that sounds reasonable. I'm I'm not sure. But uh, as a poor student, it certainly was within my budget. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all those early formative years watching movies... um, and in the early days of your film work, uh, you must have had your ears and eyes trained to an understanding of, of trying to grasp how music in film worked. So my question is, were there any particular films that you saw in the late 40s and early 50s that really made an impact on you as a composer for film? Oh, for sure. Sergei Prokofiev's score for Alexander Nevsky is... The, the, the dominant influence in my film scoring life, mm-hmm. Bernard Herrmann was another major. Mm-hmm. Some of the Malcolm Arnold scores, of, and, and among my contemporaries, Elmer Bernstein, who succeeded mm. by five years uh, into uh, the movie business. Alex North is another major influence. Oh, of course, of course, yeah. I'm just wondering if uh, at at that time, were you playing in the little orchestra in New York City while all this was going on? Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, in order to do the killing, I had to uh, quit the orchestra a week before the spring, the Christmas break. And uh, I wrote Tom Sherman, the conductor, saying, uh, Tom, Forgive me, I'm violating my contract and I will pay whatever penalty I'm supposed to pay. This is an opportunity to write and conduct a score in Hollywood. I may never get this one again. And I'm violating my contract. Forgive me. And like I said, I will do whatever I can legally and uh, you know, morally to, to, to compensate for this breach of contract. And of course, he wrote back and says, go for it. And um, there weren't there were enough overlooks around New York City, um, uh, so uh, I wasn't uh, leaving them in the lurch. But yes, uh, I did the killing during the season of 55, something like that, 54, 54. 54, I'm thinking. Yeah, wow. That, yeah. That's so cool that it had a happy ending and uh, you were you know released uh, from your contract because otherwise... You know, the world wouldn't have gotten uh, all your great work. I wasn't going to take a chance of being released from the contract. I just mm-hmm. left. Right, right. 
that's, also, that's, you asked that's wise... uh, how did I prepare and what influenced me. I have to tell you the story when Stanley first asked me to do the music for uh, Day of the Fight. Uh, I was an oboe major at Juilliard, and uh, I was did some jazz arranging, but that's all I did with you know pencil or pen and paper. So when he said, "Hey, you know, Jerry, I, you're a musician I know. Uh, do you do you know how to conduct and uh, compose and synchronize a movie score?" I said, "Sure, Stanley. All <laughs> old players know how to do that." But he meant it. He actually put money down on the the RKO Fifth Avenue studio in New York. He meant it. Yeah. Uh, so I spent four or five months doing nothing but going to movies and learning what to do and thinking. I didn't know how to think a soundtrack. Um, I didn't know about click tracks. So what I did was I uh, took a metronome that had both a click, click, click and a light blinking. I disconnected the click, click and put the light blinker up on the podium. Blinking. Wow. And I conducted to, uh, to half of a blinking metronome. And I got to the score. And That uh, is extremely clever. Yeah, he, Stanley loved it. That, uh, and I, I, I was review just a few years ago. Somebody say uh, he saw the killing. Maybe it was one of you guys uh, who said, and there was Gerald Fried's music, pound, 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 pounding me into the wall. <laughs> was that one of you fellows who wrote that? It was not me, sir. Although I would yeah, be uh, honored to make such an apt description. Yeah, I was flattered by it, but he meant <laughs> it as an insult. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't have taken it as an insult at all. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the power of music, right? That's the effectiveness pounding you into the wall like that. And again, I got to say, I think that's extremely clever and resourceful of you to, to do something like that. That is improvisation in its own right. I mean, on a technical level, here you are as a musician, you've committed to this and you're teaching yourself how to uh, work along to a click track and you create this method by using a light bulb in, in synchronicity with that. That's, that's something that I'm guessing Stanley would have seen as very much in line with his own uh, gumption when it came to, okay, how can I figure this out? Yeah. How do I make this work? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I uh, have to tell you a story. When I was speaking with Stanley about the music for Day of the Fight, I said to him, well, Stanley, in this scene, what would you like the movie to do? And he said, the same thing I always ask from you. And he imitated a drumbeat, which was his way of telling me, driving music as much as possible. Hmm. I get so that. He, yeah, so uh, I, from his sort of encouraging, that's when I thought of that the main theme of the music for the killing, which is the dog fight between two and three. You know, the both of the records playing, bum, 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 mm-hmm. and the brass are going, Bum, 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 bum. Mm-hmm, so that mm-hmm. book, five, two, and three, was the essence of the music, which is the most tense music I could think of. And we liked it. I got four more pictures with him from that. Yeah, you did. Well, I mean, that, uh, uh, you know, brings to mind the, you know, the word, uh, you know, propulsion, that propulsiveness that is so clear in your scores that really, I think, is essential to Stanley's films in terms of the, the narrative, 
it really does your your scores really do help drive the story forward with that you know uh you know brilliantly syncopated uh rhythmic drive for want of a better phrase well that's the theory <laughs> that's what <laughs> we get paid to do wow so did you come from a musical family gerald yes my grandfather in the old country was court musician What's his name? Uh, Zard Chernovsky, I think his name was, one of the biggest landowners in the Ukraine. And he hired my grandfather to be the court musician, teach the other serfs how to play and just provide music for him. Yes, I got, and uh, his one of his daughters was my piano teacher. And she uh, moved to Montreal and played piano for silent movies. No kidding. Yeah. So when did you first take piano lessons from her? At the age of eight. Eight. And had I you? Hated. Yes, so did I. <laughs> now I yeah. love it. Right. Did you decide to become a musician, uh, you know, before sitting down at the keys? Or when was your come-to-music moment? My come-against-music moment started when they made me take piano lessons and I didn't like anybody to make me do anything yeah. and became probably the world's worst piano student in the Bronx, <laughs> just out of spite. But the punchline to the story is, at the age of 12, uh, one of my brother's friends was a saxophone player. He didn't want to play anymore. So uh, he sold me the saxophone. Within six months, I was working. And at the age of 14, I was already making enough money to give myself a sense of independence. Wow. Which is a, a, a good demonstration of motivation uh, in pedagogy. The, I'm still a lousy pianist, even though I use the piano, of course, <laughs> as the instrument of reference. But give me something I wanted to do to play jazz saxophone. And like I said, at the age of 14, I was a working stiff. That's, that's amazing. I went to music and art high school, and uh, I came in on piano, and uh, they they give you an orchestral instrument, and they gave me the oboe, for which I am eternally grateful. I love the instrument, and I still play in the Norwalk Symphony and in the Connecticut Symphonic Winds here. Oh, I have to come up and see you. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not even half joking. I got to make a point of doing that. All right. Hey, All right. Is, I'm enjoying this. I hope so. It's a, it's a, a a real treat to get to chat with you. You know the name Howard Sackler? Yes. He was part of that those super bright guys that Kubrick hung around with. Mhm. Mm I know him and, from uh, the Labruto book and from speaking with uh, Vincent Labruto. But go on. Uh, yeah, he was also uh, his character was in a movie made by Paul Mazursky, I think. The movie was Next Stop, Greenwich Village. Okay. Paul was also part of that group. He was still called Irwin then. I did and not I was, know that. Paul Mazursky was originally Irwin? Yes, he was. How about that? James, you got something? No, I was just saying he was in Fear and Desire. Oh, of course. Right. And he later, yeah, he later became a, a pretty prominent director in his own right. Oh, I love his movies. Yeah. Yeah. No question. Well, okay, speaking of movies, I want to uh, leapfrog into uh, the part two with uh, a discussion of your years collaborating with Stanley, beginning with uh, 1951's The Day of the Fight, 
Right. Um, now, Day of the Fight is, of course, the very first film that Kubrick directed in 1951. It's a short documentary uh, which followed the New York middleweight boxer Walter Cartier through his preparations for his fight with Bobby James that took place on April 17th in 1950. This is the story of a fight and of a fighter, Walter Cartier. Today is the fight. Tonight at 10 o'clock will be one of the moments which justify his difficult life. At 6 o'clock on the morning of the fight begins the toughest part of being a boxer, the waiting. Walter is on the right of Vincent, his identical twin. He doesn't mind the hard training, the four miles of road work every day, as much as the waiting. Walter knows that each bout is more important than the one before because he's rapidly climbing to the middleweight championship of the world and he must keep winning. It's a long way until night. Walter, wearing the bow tie, is 24. He's a native of New York and a fighter as far back as he can remember. His father is away, and when he was a little boy, he lost his mother. Walter began to do exhibition boxing with his brother Vincent when they were three years old. During the war, they fought exhibitions in the Navy, where they were in the same outfit together. Now, the score to Day of the Fight is very driving and intense, and it definitely feels very much, you know, it plays out like a noir thriller in its approach, which only lets up in those final few moments during the fight itself. So can you tell us, Gerald, about the discussions you had with Stanley prior to getting started on those compositions? Yeah, well, that's when I described that his instructions to me for those scenes in the middle and the end of the movie were... That's his way of me saying it, make it driving and percussive. Mm -hmm. So um, he kind of encouraged me to write that kind of music. I probably would have written something like that uh, on my own. I'm kind of drum happy myself. Mm -hmm. It's uh, one of the basically true primitive sounds in all of music. It's probably Um, the first form of mass communication, is it not? Probably, yeah. I, I heard that from a professor in college that, you know, it was likely that one tribe would use drums to send messages to another, either, you know, a warning that a war party was coming or something like that. And my professor framed it as though drums were arguably the first form of mass communication that humans ever devised. Yeah. I, I'd go even further than that. Uh, I was once asked, uh, what are the dominant inputs to music? And uh, the person who asked me that was uh, an anthropologist, and he assumed my answer would be, well, the cultural inputs. You know, Chinese music is so much different from Russian, from American, from jazz. Mm -hmm. And I said, to me, the two primary musical uh, wells that music draws its water and its power from are the body rhythms, uh, meaning the heartbeat and Mm -hmm. walking, the Russian instruments, and something called the chord of nature, which is, uh, that can be demonstrated. You go to a piano, hold down the the, uh, pedal so that the strings vibrate, play a low note, and if you listen carefully, you will hear the overtones 
of what's called the chord of nature. Yes. The first interval is an octave, boom, boom. Next interval is a fifth, a boom, pa, fifth. Mm-hmm. And then they get mm-hmm. all of the third, etc., etc. You probably know this anyway. Uh, that, to me, are the two main springs, wellsprings of music, uh, body rhythms and the chord of nature. And uh, when all else fails, I go back to them. And uh, percussion is based, of course, on body rhythms. You yes. Fast, slow, heartbeat, mm-hmm. breathing, etc. So uh, that helped me formulate my music for uh, the day of the fight. Uh, and then after that, I went back to Juilliard and became uh, a composing student to find out what I just did. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I mean, yes, all of that made sense. But for our listeners, thank you so much for uh, elaborating on that. Um, I, I'm just going to follow up by asking, you know, was there a reason you didn't score uh, for the fight scene itself in Day of the Fight? I'm sure there was. Let me see if I can think of what it was. I think the sound effects uh was so effective. No, I'm sorry, I can't recall a conversation with Kubrick. That's cool. That's okay. Um, I mean, sometimes the absence of music is a choice that directors make, uh, you know, for its own sense of propulsion, the sound of the action uh, on the screen. Yeah. So, yeah. The build-up to the fight, I had all that tense, dramatic... uh, three against two music. So therefore, when that stopped, that silence made a statement. Like, this is the fight, focus on it kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. I bet that was part of our thinking. So when Stanley asked you to create the score for Day of the Fight, you know, um, were you in Juilliard at that time? And if so, were there other students who were discussing how uh, it would be possible to score for films? Not, there must have been, there were, you know, composing majors there. Mm-hmm. In fact, John, John Williams was at Juilliard a few years after that. Yeah. Uh, we didn't know each other then. We didn't overlap. We missed by one year. Okay. Uh, oh, there must have been. But I was interested in jazz, saxophone, and symphony oboe, and none of this movie music stuff. So Stanley's asking me was the, the most, luckiest thing that ever happened to me you know got me on this career Mm. he lived in an apartment and the church used in that in that short was right across the street yes it was and i remember taking the photograph of the apartment and i wasn't aware of that and i turned around and i said oh my goodness that's the church now through the quiet morning streets of new york the two boys walked to morning mass. It's important for Walter to get Holy Communion in case something should go wrong tonight. And it's probably, I don't know if if you're aware, but I I suspect maybe the same serendipity happened with him and he just used it because it was across the street from where he lived. That's a pretty good reason right there, you know, to go past that reason. It was available and did the job that uh, he wanted it to do. 
Well, that, I mean, that's nothing if uh, to not show how resourceful he was, as we already know. I mean, he, he was always very wisely culling his resources from whichever uh, angle seemed to make the most sense. And I, I can attest to what James is saying. I mean, the church is like, it's not on an opposite corner, but it's catty corner, so to speak. It's just diagonally across the street from that apartment he was living in and maybe 40 yards away, would you say, James, 50 yeah. yards away? It's yeah. like nothing. It's right there. And he must have just looked at his window and said, oh, I need a location there. You know. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that apartment, uh, I forgot the name of his dog, but I knew Stanley had a dog he loved very dearly. Do you know the name of that dog? Gosh, I don't. Oh, wow, no. We certainly know he was an animal lover. Yeah. Right, because we all know about when he moved to England to the English countryside and he had the, you know, the homes, the estates with all, with all the, the land around it that he, he had many dogs and cats and there are yeah. some photographs of it. But I didn't even think of that if he had pets in New York. So that's really cool to hear. He had one dog, a small dog with an ordinary name like Spot or something like that. <laughs> Rover. <laughs> showered. Yeah, on that, in that category. And he showered a lot of affection on that little fellow. Well, that makes sense. I mean, what pictures we do have of him with dogs and cats, um, as animal people ourselves, it's clear that, you know, you're looking at someone who, uh, for whom it was effortless to just dote affection upon those animals. It came very naturally to him, and it was something he wanted to... Uh, to do, it was just uh, uh, inherent in his personality, and I think that speaks volumes of any man who, you know, has that kind of compassion for the little creatures in the world, so to speak. Gerald, do you, do you remember that what the dog looked like? I remember black and white, small. Uh... Is it the is it the one that was in Day of the Fight? Because. Uh, the, the two the two brothers, the twins, they didn't have a dog in real life, but I believe that Stanley provided them a, do a, oh, a, a, a yeah. dog just to show a bit of like, compassion with the boxer. Uh, so I wonder if that was his dog that he used in the film then, because it, it, it did supply yeah, it. I think so, yeah. I think so. <laughs> I bet you're onto something there, Stephen. At Walter's three-room apartment where he lives with his aunt... Vince is serving him breakfast. He's a lawyer and Walter's manager. Vince lives in New Jersey, but in the slow hours before the fight, he's staying with his brother. Now they live as they used to years ago, the two boys and Walter's dog. Well, um, so there's an obvious Bernard Herman influence in uh, that score. And I, I, I say that as, you know, all praise, it's a compliment, as I know uh, you already mentioned he was a big influence on you. And as I understand it, um, you recorded the score in New York with uh, 19 musicians, and Stanley attended this session. Do you recall how long that recording session was? And I think it was about uh, three hours and about two hours overtime. So four and a half, five hours. Okay, wow. That's pretty efficient. Speaking of composers, ask me who played first French horn on that recording of the day of the fight. 
Gerald, who played first French horn on the recording of Day of the Fight? The head of music at the New England Conservatory, Gunther Schuler. Okay, wow. Do you, have you ever run into Gunther? I've not met Mr. No, no, I've not met Gunther. But uh, you do ask him about that recording. I think it was his first professional recording. We were like you know, kids in our early 20s. How about that? Oh, well, there's another story about that. Uh, I invited, you know, the people I knew, you know, I uh, hired them to be in the mostly people my age, early 20s. Mm-hmm. We got to the studio on uh, the, was it RCA on Fifth Avenue, and uh, the uh, manager of the studio wouldn't let us in. He says, you kids can't come in here. There's a professional <laughs> recording coming in. <laughs> wouldn't let us in. It took Stanley to get there and, uh, you know, showed that I'm the guy who wrote the check, let them in. Yeah. Wow. That's that's one of my favorite stories. That is a very cool story. I could just see him having the uh, the moxie to show up there and say, "No, you know, I'm the guy whose name is on the check, and you're going to let them in." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, he uh, he was a good producer and a good director. He uh, he wasn't unpleasant about it, but he knew what he wanted and mm-hmm. sort of got it done. And it, drove a lot of people crazy, you know, he was so fussy, but, you know, <laughs> he's Stanley Kubrick. Right, right. And, you know, in more recent years, there's been some chatter, and uh, without trying to give any, you know, weight or too much credence to it, but, you know, some have said that Stanley did take a long time to pay his musicians for uh, that session, and it's it's possible that you weren't paid, but... Is it okay to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that you guys were really just, you know, young guys scraping by in those days and doing what you could to get your foot in the door? Or do you have another recollection about that? Uh, I have only one recollection. And uh, he, our deal was that uh, we would work for nothing, but as soon as he sells the picture, we'll get paid. Mm-hmm. He paid the musicians. That, that, that was never an issue. But uh, he would, wouldn't pay me. Uh, so I s- said... Uh, he saw the picture and says, well, no, I'm supposed to get paid now. He says, Jerry, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be in the picture business. Mm-hmm. I already done Fear and Desire, and uh, my name was around. I also probably have, you know, I got an agent. I was, I was with the uh, MCA Music Department. I was established because of Stanley. He says, Jerry, I did enough for you. I don't have to pay you. Mm. And this Stanley... Uh, part of the reason that that picture did well and that you're in the business was because of the quality of my music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, but then again, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time today talking about that Cooper was a good friend and a nice guy. I, I was going to say it doesn't sound like you were jilted. You, you know that you, you certainly don't sound jilted by the experience of of working with and being his friend. Uh, ultimately, no. It just uh, you know. Uh, it was a matter of professional pride, I guess. You know, mm-hmm. well, the reason your movie got you into the business is because of partly because of my music, which right. may or may not be true. But in any case, I had to defend my ego. But it's, it's irrelevant now. He, he he got me into the business, and I was very happy being a film composer. Um, if it's okay, I want to ask about Alexander Singer. Uh, who you mentioned before, and uh, Alexander operated the second camera at the boxing match itself. Um, right. And 
he's the one who you mentioned introduced you to Stanley back in the 1940s, or did he reintroduce you? Because we have conflicting stories. They were both at Taft High School, and you were at Juilliard. Um, did the three of you socialize together? Uh, in, the, in my high school days, I did socialize with Alex, who lived around the corner from me. I did not know Stanley in high school. I went to music and art high school. So right, to, right. Uh, uh, Taft. Um, and um, it is true, Alex did get Stanley interested in movies. Alex was a still photographer, too, and uh, Stanley, as you know, at the age of 16, it was cheaper for Look Magazine to put him on salary than to pay him per job. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, Alexander Singer's film Cold Wind in August from 1961 was also scored by you. So, right. we're, we're curious, have, did you remain friends with Alex in later life? Still are. That's uh, great. He's not in good health now. Yeah. He's in Los Angeles and I'm in Connecticut, but I talked to his son Jethro a lot. And just a few months ago, I actually talked to Alex uh, before he got seriously ill. Okay. Did you used to live in New Mexico? I lived in New Mexico for 17 years. Oh, okay. Yeah. I remember a newspaper article a few years ago. Yeah, and commuted to L.A. to still do scores, and I did a few movies in Santa Fe, too. Oh, wow. That's a beautiful city. For the last uh, 15 years, I've been writing uh, plays and uh, movie screenplays, Uh, one of them which won a competition in New York, and they're about kind of mystical occurrences, people with powerful fantasies who are taken over by their fantasies. That seems to be the subject matter that got my attention, and that's what I'm writing about. Oh, wow. Wow. In, including two in the world of music. Uh, anyway, that's that's off the subject. Uh, no, that's, I mean, that's still really say, interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, one is in the jazz world, one is in the classical symphony world. Anyway, uh, when we have more time, if you're interested, I'll tell you about that. No, absolutely. Um, But since we want to let you go in uh, about five minutes, um, I just want to uh, ask uh, uh, about the upcoming auction at Bonhams for this recently unearthed screenplay for Burning Secret, uh, quote-unquote discovered by our friend Professor Nathan Abrams. And we'd like to ask you about the upcoming Bonhams auction that you have entered some lots into, including the 1956 Kubrick and Willingham penned script for The Burning Secret. Um, This was a film for our listeners that Stanley and his producing partner at the time, James B. Harris, had tried to get made but failed to garner studio interest. How did you come into possession of it, Gerald, and where has it been for the last 60 years? Oh, in one of my closets, uh, and I gave it to my son Joshua, who's a Kubrick fan, and he set up the auction, and plus letters I have from Kubrick. Oh, wow. Uh, he asked me uh, to, to, to do the music for it. I said, sure. I, I was well-read enough to have respect for Stefan Zweig, and uh, Kubrick, this was uh, before I knew that Kubrick was going to uh, 
you know, would not use live scores anymore. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not sure of the time sequence. But anyway, I expected to do it. He asked me and gave me a script. That's how I got to be in possession of the script. Wow. So did you always know you were in possession of this? Or was it, as you say, just in a box in your closet? And one day you were like, oh, here's Burning Secret. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was on a shelf until I realized that Kubrick now, uh, people uh, are collecting his memorabilia. He's, you know, uh, a major person in our lives and history. So oh, yes. I gave my son Joshua, who's a Kubrick fan, and plus the letters, plus, of course, all the uh, recordings, which I think my children have anyway, and he took it from there. We broke off the first interview there and called Gerald back a few days later to continue the discussion. Here is our continuation. Hello? Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, hello. Gerald. Oh, hello. 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 <laughs> Thank you for singing my song. <laughs> How you doing? Uh, okay. Um, yeah, I was fascinated by your questions and... Um, you know about the auction coming up, of course. Yeah. Do you want to say anything? We uh, we asked you a bit about it last time. Do you have anything you want to add? Feel Not free. Really. I was planning to go, but I have a rehearsal the day before and a concert the day after. And if I'm going to go through the trouble of traveling to New York and all that... I need more time there to see family and friends, sure. so I, I decided not to go. Okay. Well, I guess they'll have to soldier on without you. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine that would be too difficult for them. Well, best of luck with that. It, it looks like an exciting auction. Indeed. So we've got uh, Stephen and James on the call again with okay. Gerald and... Uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad you like those questions. Those are all from uh Stephen, James and uh our friend Mark who also helps with the research quite a bit. So uh I, I'm just gonna pick up where we left off if that's okay and That's what I'm here for. All right. <laughs> You're the man. You're the man. <laughs> Let's see. All right, well um I believe where we left off we were talking about fear and desire from nineteen fifty three. The enemies who struggle here do not exist unless we call them into being. This forest then, and all that happens now, is outside history. Only the unchanging shapes of fear and doubt and death are from our world. These soldiers that you see keep our language and our time 
but have no other country but the mind. Um, and this was the second film uh, that you scored for uh, him in his, in his first feature film, Fear and Desire. I believe that was not only Stanley's first, but yours as well. Absolutely. That, that must have been a very exciting proposition. Can you tell us about roughly when did Stanley ask you to work on Fear and Desire? I'm, I'm not sure of the exact timetable, but it was an appropriate amount of time. We sort of became friends. Uh, just before day of the fight, and remain friends during that and after. So he probably mentioned it early in the game, and then when the time came around to book a studio and get serious, uh, he did so. Mm. Uh, so if I had to give an answer, let's say two or three months before the scoring session or something like that, right. we kind of assumed that I would do it uh, at that time. Okay. Um. So, again, you conducted the orchestra in the studio uh, to record your score for Fear and Desire. W was Stanley present uh, at that recording? Oh, absolutely. Hmm. He was present at all of them, sure. Do you recall roughly how long it took for you to record it? The takes? Fear and Desire, we, did, we had a three-hour session. We went about an hour and a half or two hours overtime. Wow. So let's say uh, overall... It took five hours. Incredible. To get so much work done in that amount of time. Yeah, well, the musicians, you know, were good musicians. And I tried to anticipate all the problems. Um, and I guess I, I did enough so that it went fairly smoothly. Do you have any other thoughts about uh, Fear and Desire? What did, what did you think of the picture when you saw it? I loved it. I thought it was a good dramatic story and an important philosophical statement about you know, the point of view of the soldiers and how they wanted a moment of glory, and the only thing they could think of was to kill a general. Mm. Now, that sounds a little soporific or maybe a little like uh, the present political scene in the United States at the time <laughs> now. Uh, but uh, I, I understand uh, a lot of people, especially people in the arts, have this need or wish or desire or fantasy to do something, quote, important, mm. you know, something cosmic. And these soldiers could think of nothing else but to kill a general. Mm. And I related to that, and I think Stanley understood that, too. Of course he did. He, he, yeah. he was in charge of the movie. So, yes, I liked the movie very much. And uh, That's a really interesting uh, take on it, a very unique uh, angle, if I may say so. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I, well, I also want to ask, because, you know, the film was not uh, available. It wasn't uh, in distribution. It was only unearthed. Uh, a number of years ago. Do you recall uh, how much time passed between when you first saw it and, and were you able to see it again in more recent years? Well, I guess you don't have this information, but it had a showing in Manhattan at an art house a few months after we finished the picture. 
and I got some very good write-ups. Do you know the name Sigmund Space, the, the columnist? Yeah, I believe he's mentioned in uh, Vincent Labruto's book. Oh, okay. Well, he gave me a very good write-up for the score. He, he said uh, the score had superior vibrations. <laughs> superior vibrations. Now, forgive me if I sounded like I wasn't. I was aware of the, uh, uh, the art house showing because in Labruto's book, it mentions that the film did uh, ge- you know, garner generally positive reviews from critics, even if the public uh, wasn't aware of it. But uh, Fear and Desire wasn't available, I meant to say, on like home video, on DVD or anything, uh, or VHS prior to that for many years. And I don't, rec- I, I don't, I don't recall which year it was uh, released by uh, Kino Lorber. But uh, we just wondered if you'd seen it again more recently. Actually, I I saw excerpts of it from some uh, rerun or some, I'm not sure of the circumstances, but as I recall, it was Stanley himself who withdrew the picture from uh, yeah. public scrutiny. Yeah. Um, all right, so moving on to Killer's Kiss from 55. And out of the city's jungle night comes the clawing, burning impact of a killer's kiss. hits with the gut shock of a knockout punch. A picture as brazen as the naked bulbs of Broadway and as hard as the New York streets where it was shot. Can't you get it, Vinny? To me, you're just an old man. You smell bad. I could kill you right here and now. Oh, I don't think you will. I wouldn't be too sure of that. Don't kill me. I don't want to die. I'll do anything you say. Anything. He was lost as soon as he looked at her. I love you. Caught in a double cross as dirty as the alley where they planned to end it. I'm gonna count to three, and if you still don't know, I'm gonna blow your brains out. One, two. She's in a loft on 24th Street. How'd she get there? Boys are waiting in her apartment. She all right? All rules are off. All fouls are fair. As man meets murder in the stabbing, slashing climax, that's the payoff for a killer's kiss. This was, of course, your third collaboration with Stanley, and uh, also his second, somewhat more polished features film. Um, can you tell us about your approach to the music for Killer's Kiss and what was discussed between you and Stanley? Did he give you a lot of notes or did he say, watch the film and bring me a score? Uh, well, there was uh, a preamble. He was so upset by uh, the reviews of Fear and Desire, you know, the sophomoric attempt to, to be an artsy, you know, Sergei, Sergei Eisenstein kind of American and write a profound movie, which was a total failure cinematically. Mm. He was so stung by those reviews that Joe's Kiss was made to show his commercial chops, and mm. I'm using that phrase uh, as a quote from Stanley. Mm. Commercial chops. Right. A, 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 a serious attempt to be non-artsy and to make a regular kind of movie with a hero, a villain, a love story, mm-hmm. and that was the genesis of Killer's Kiss. 
And he even did that well, I thought. And I even thought that was quite an artful movie, too, like that famous fight in the mannequin factory was was kind of a splendid piece of cinematography. Mm. But his, his, his desire was to show that he does have commercial chops. <laughs> uh, I don't think at that point he cared about the critics. He wanted to have the picture make money so he could get financing for his next project. Sure, sure. I, I wondered if, uh, if, if you recall, like, did, did Stanley give you notes about uh, what he was hoping for? Uh, well, there say, were no, no written notes, but we talked about it a lot. And I think one of the reasons he used that song was because it was written by a songwriter who already was getting popular, Norman Gimbel. And uh, he, wanted, he wanted to show that he could play the game, you know, and have a, a hit mm-hmm. song from the movie. You know, I wasn't going to argue. I would have liked to have written my own, but you know, I was so pleased to be able to uh, do another feature that uh, I kept my mouth shut. And it was a pretty good song, as I remember. It's called Once, if I'm not mistaken. Once, yes. What do you mean? Oh, he just lives in the building. Oh. He used to be a pretty good fighter. A fighter? Sure. He's fighting tonight, as a matter of fact. We can watch him on the TV. Well, it certainly works perfectly as a love theme, and uh, it would have been interesting nonetheless to hear what... I'm sure you would have given something fantastic as well. Well, I... I have to assume that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's safe to assume. So, but you you also used some really cool uh, Latin jazz and mambo uh, rhythms on the Killer's Kiss soundtrack, which have always stuck out to me, and I'm sure a lot of fans of the film. Okay. Do you recall the genesis of that idea, how it developed? You asked that question in your notes, and I'm so happy you asked. Yes, I do know the genesis of that. I was making my living, you know, playing odd jobs around New York on saxophone, uh, and I would play with Latino bands, and I would play regular dance bands. And I found out that late at night, after 12 or 1 o'clock, I was getting tired, we were playing American standards, even, you know, the great stuff, the 
Cole Porter, uh, Hoagie Carmichael kind of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get a little sleepy, but playing the Latino music, which was obligatory then, you know, the the Latin revolution in music was had come to New York. I never got tired of playing Latino music, mm. and I think because it was like folk music, which you know is evergreen. Yes, yes, uh, yes. And uh, I never Agreed. got tired of that. Even late at night, it was kind of refreshing. It kind of struck some kind of a root. I never forgot that. In fact, uh, you mentioned one of your questions, and I'm writing screenplays now, uh, and one of them uh, has as its star a Puerto Rican street musician. So I'm once again writing Latin or Latino music. Oh, that's cool. Which is correct. Latin music or Latino. Latino refers to a person, right? So it's Latin music. Yeah, Gosh, music. Yeah. I, I believe, yeah, that is that is correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, that's that's great that you're still, um, you know, taken so taken by uh, that genre that you're 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 still working with it. I've always responded to it. I I think you know Latin rhythms are for, for me they were a huge influence uh, and continue to be so. And they're used to great effect, obviously, in the Killer's Kiss soundtrack. So when you were recording those sessions, um, do you have any recollections of uh, specifically your time recording uh, the Latin rhythm combo? Uh, yeah, we brought in uh, Alexi, I forgot us, one of the famous percussions of the time, to uh, help us with those, yeah. And... Uh, Killer's Kiss, I, I think, was done in New York as well. And uh, I knew some Latino mu- musicians. You know, people like Shelly Mann and uh, Larry Bunker and Ray Brown and uh, Red Mitchell. They were so good and so versatile that they fitted right into the Latino stuff. Yeah. And uh, on piano, I think uh, I think Cy Coleman did some of those recordings for me. Do you know him, the composer of, uh, you know, Sweet Charity, you know, the mm-hmm. Yeah, he was then Seymour Kaufman when he was playing piano for me. Okay. The name okay. the name is familiar. Go on, sorry. Yeah, the name became Psycho. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's when it, it was always the dessert of a recording session. Uh, the the, the uh, uh, symphony musicians went home and then the jazz guys do the small combo stuff, which is always fun. Yeah. And, uh, I played uh, on some of them myself. You did? Do you, do you recall which instruments you played? Uh, yeah. Tenor sax on some of the jazz stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, like uh, like on Cry Baby Killers, uh, specifically, uh, that was a movie that I think Andre Previn was the pianist on. Mm. And uh, yeah, I trotted out my tenor sax and I, I held my own with these great jazz musicians. Cry, baby, baby, cry, cry, cry. I pushed them too fast against the hard, cold wall. No one to hear, no one to call. All-out exposure of the jazz beat generation. Living like crazy, loving like mad. Well, Carol was a swell girl until Manny got his hands on her. You mean until she wanted Manny's hands on her? The story of pent-up, twisted kids whose violence screams at you from the headlines every day. Their blazing destruction rains viciousness upon the land. You'll wind up in the gutter before you're old enough to vote. 
Here's what happens when the cops stage a blast out. When hysterical crowds gather, screaming for blood. When a boy gets a gun and unleashes a monstrous terror as the crybaby killer. But you're a mad beast, an animal. Maxton. What's the matter with you? You afraid of hurting his feelings, this, this monster with a gun? Murderer degenerate? Shut up. I'm giving you ten minutes, son. Then we're coming in. Officer, take her back inside where she belongs. That, that was fun. And also it saved me a salary. I was you know, on a tight budget. <laughs> Didn't have to pay myself. So. <laughs> that's, well, that's cool. I, I, James has a question, but I want to, uh, and I want to bring him in for it. Um, or actually, I think he just wanted to point out a cool piece of trivia um, but I have a long shot question we have to ask. Did Stanley, by any chance, play drums on any of these tracks? No, no, he did not yeah, consider yeah. himself a professional drummer, even though he was, uh, you know, played in the high school band or high school orchestra. No, he didn't. But okay. He and we both were kind of drum happy, which accounted partly for our good relationship. You know, there's something so primal about percussion uh, that appealed to both of us. Yes. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And I, I, I want to ask about The Killing, of course, from 56, which was your next collaboration with him. You ever take a few thousand? I figure the loot on this deal at two million. There should be that much in the track offices. big dollar sign there where most women have a heart. So play it smart. Stay in character and you'll have money. Plenty of it. George will have it. He'll blow it all on you. Johnny, I'm no good for anybody else. I'm not pretty and I'm not very smart, so please don't leave me alone anymore. So what makes you think or know that you're going to have several hundred thousand dollars? Because I do. I just can't talk about it, that's all. Not even to me, your little share. I shouldn't have even mentioned I was going to have it. Not that I mind. I know I can trust you. But if these other guys the ever... These other guys? I can't talk about it, Cherry. You've been talking. I just spilled to her. Why didn't I? What, do you think I'm crazy? I wouldn't jerk, you clown. Come on, clown. Sing us a chorus from Pagliacci. Hey, where's the jerk? Where's George? Like Killer's Kiss, which was a film told as a series of flashbacks from the protagonist's point of view, the killing also plays around with time and uses a, a disjointed, uh, nonlinear narrative. So do you need to employ a different aesthetic when composing music for films that 
uh, shift time like that? Or do you need to help the clarity of the story musically in another way? I think I did a little of both. As I remember, there was some, when the flashback went back a few years, I think I actually altered the style of the music. But uh, the overriding thing, especially in The Killing, was you know Stanley's insistence that drive and energy took precedence over everything. Mm. I think I told the story how he described how he wanted the music, the uh, uh, how what the aesthetic of the music should be, by doing a brum mm-hmm. yeah. Yep, and I that, remember that overrode everything, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the score I, you know, I, I try to reflect that, including the flashbacks. Like I, I would start when there was another flashback. I would go back and develop a theme as the time develops. I think I there was some core co- coordination of time and music, but it wasn't that specific. It wasn't like I didn't go back for, to make the music a period piece. I don't think the time uh, span was that uh, great. Mm. Well, it sounds like you certainly knew how to adapt to uh, the different approaches that he was employing, again, to tell a a nonlinear story and that can, you know, be very challenging, uh, to do with music. But, um, well, by that time I was an old experienced pro of 26. Right. <laughs> I, well, I, I can tell you well, those early movies, I learned a lot, just the, the dynamics, the technology, as well as the aesthetics of what music can do. And, uh, Maybe Stanley's presence, you know, he communicated kind of a, a, a specialness. Like you, he made you reach for the best uh, parts of yourself just mm. by his intensity and his interest and his own aesthetic uh, preoccupations. Sure. You, one can be a veteran at 26. If I'm not mistaken, I think, I think McCart- Paul McCartney and George Harrison being the younger of the two Beatles, they were both... 26 when they recorded uh, the White Album in 1968. They were right around there. And if you, that just had its uh, 50th anniversary, that album's release. And, th- and if you listen to the musicianship on that level, that was the band really uh, at a, a new creative peak. And, and they were, you know, seasoned veterans of the ripe old age at 26. Right, right, right. <laughs> so w- when you recorded the score, um, for uh, the killing, uh, you did so in LA rather than in New York. And yes. if I'm not mistaken, this orchestra was almost double the size that you had worked with before. Um, were you composing the score with uh, over 40 musicians in mind? Uh, well, I knew it was going to be, there was an orchestral minimum. If a movie was over a certain amount of time and over a certain budget, uh, the union requirement was that you must use a 40-piece orchestra. Ah, I see. Interesting. Yeah, and, and it, was, it was wonderful, you know, uh, because you could say to the director, well, I'm not you're wasting your money, but it's mandatory. We mm-hmm. can't get et cetera, et cetera. I loved it. Sure. Understandably. Um, so I presume then that there was uh, money in the budget to cover that amount of musicians already. Um. Uh, well, I was I was going to say no. Of course, that Stanley and I had a run to the Cayman Islands. <laughs> high 10 years. Uh, 
<laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah, well, he had a rich uncle, Martin Perveller, I think, who financed that movie. Or did he finance Fear and Desire? I forgot which. I believe it was like, Fear and Desire, but go on. By that time, Kubrick had some leverage in the business, so he probably didn't have that much trouble. And, of course, after the killing, he, you know, one of the great film noir films of all time, he uh, had no financial troubles, as sure. I remember. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Andre Previn before. Did you say that he played piano on The Killing? I know. Was it... Remember, on Cry Baby Killer, that movie. And, yes, he played on, on The Killing, too, yes. Wow. I remember uh, that 5-4 section where the orchestra played a figure in 5-4, and uh, Andre imitated that on piano uh, a bar and a half later. Yeah, Andre was the pianist on The Killing. It's fun dropping the names of the musicians who are on some of those sessions. Like, I grew up, uh, you know, with some jazz heroes, people like uh, Pete Candoli and Red Callender and Ray mm -hmm. Brown. And uh, sure enough, they were in the orchestra I was conducting. It was a, a, a mind blower. Wow. Ray Brown is a legend. Yeah. And Andre Previn isn't a slacker. Uh, no slack, no slouch there either, sir. No. By any stretch. So, so now, by the time you were scoring The Killing, you say, you know, uh, to, I'm paraphrasing you, the, you had developed your own kind of trademark style. Uh, for example, the battle of uh, three versus four. Where, do you recall where you got that idea from? Uh, I certainly can. Igor Stravinsky, for one thing, mm -hmm. uh, he used that as, as a source of tension in a lot of his music. I also learned another device from Igor Stravinsky. You're a musician, you might appreciate this story. Uh, it's hard to uh, equal the power of a plain old classical major and minor triad. You know, it's mm -hmm. like the chord yep. of nature. It exactly. has power, power, beauty, stamina, etc., etc. But you can't write in with major and minor chords simply. You just sound like bad Mozart. So <laughs> what I learned from Stravinsky and I used in... Uh, Certainly in that, that thing I wrote for Star Trek at a month time, but I think I started using that uh, with uh, The Killing to take those triads, but instead of having just plain triads, I'd have, uh, let's say, a G major triad, say, in the treble in the right hand, and a G sharp major triad in the left hand, the two of them going at once on a rhythmic figure. How so cool. Power of triads, and you get the 20th century... Uh, fire and dissonance mm -hmm. of, the, of the half tones. So you as a musician know exactly what I'm talking about. I do, sir, yeah. Precisely. I, use, uh, I think I started that in The Killing on some of those sections.
Well, the dissonant, uh, the use of dissonance in 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 that in those sections is really powerful. And uh, as we discussed earlier, to use the phrase, you know, very propulsive, the way it helps drive the uh, the imagery and the music forward together. There's a real synergy there. Yeah, I think Kubrick referred to that as the dogfight between the, you know, the mm. three against the four or against the two. Mm-hmm. I think that was his phrase, dogfight. Now, you and Stanley both being, you know, very artistically minded individuals, you had to continually come up with new ideas, both as individuals and together. Do you recall how you and he and how you both went about deciding which were good and which were bad ideas? Um, Or shall we say not usable ideas? Well, yes, I could first uh, describe the first few pictures the, certainly Day of the Fight and Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss. He wasn't that comfortable with music or the power of music or had the knowledge and the experience to have much of a, an opinion. Mm. Uh, so uh, he, he trusted me pretty much. He just told me what he wanted the music to do, as I described. And I used the, the, my own experience and my double background, both playing with jazz and swing groups and playing in symphony orchestras. I was that time with the Pittsburgh Symphony and the Dallas Symphony. Uh, and when I did uh, uh, Paths of Glory, I was uh, with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. So I had that double background, and he trusted me. It wasn't until we got mostly to Paths of Glory when he realized that uh, he can't let anything out of his control because he might get hurt. Mm. And I think I told you that he heard every single machine, you know how many machine gun sound effects there were in the Paths of Glory? Yeah. He auditioned every one of them. He went through all of them. justify every note in Paths of Glory. And uh, I remember one in general, there was, uh, the patrol was out uh, in No Man's Land, and they come across the bodies of their fellow dead soldiers, and I, I had a, I was going to use a cymbal crash there, and I remember spending a whole afternoon talking Stanley into letting me use that cymbal crash. He, he felt it was too obvious, too, you know, a Hollywood cymbal crash, or I'm not sure what he was thinking of, but I told him that a cymbal crash could be a very subtle sound effect. That was about a three or four hour session on one cymbal crash. <laughs> that was that was the Stanley Kubrick that the world has grown to know and love. Right. And not everybody loved it, but uh, that's what made him Stanley Kubrick. That 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 focus and uh, and meticulousness, the attention to detail. Yeah. In fact, when people ask me 
how do I explain the fact that I did his first five movies and he used pre-recorded music ever since then? And I use, as part of my answer, uh, I considered Stanley a master chef. He brought all the ingredients, put them together in this huge pot called a work print, and he mixed the ingredients. Mm-hmm. But with music, you can't really tell the impact until you hear it with the orchestra. And uh, on the scoring stage, it's, it's too late, it's too expensive to go back, when there's usually no time to redo it. Sure. And he, he couldn't mix, he couldn't put that in the mix with just me describing the music or playing it on the piano. Mm. And I think that's why he went to pre-recorded music. He knew the ingredients, they can mix them well. Mm. And because he's, he's Stanley Cooper, he, he makes them kind of magnificently, you know, and a lot of jokes like the Blue Danube and stuff like that. That, mm-hmm. that, was, mm-hmm. that was kind of brilliant. Uh, so, you know, uh, but I, I believed then and I believe now that his reason was because he needed to hear the ingredients before he made the soup or the cake. <laughs> right. I get it. That's a perfect metaphor. I want to ask because you have cited your ability to work quickly, expediently as being crucial to your career. Was right. was that something innate in you, Gerald, or did it come with experience, or do you feel it was just done out of necessity? Necessity, pretty much. Uh, I had four kids to to feed and to send to college, and I needed the work. And uh, in movies and in television, uh, they give you a deadline of you know, there's either an air date for TV or a budget date, like uh, the producer says, Jerry, we have to have this scored by January 15th because uh, we're running out of money and we can't go into overtime, etc., etc. And so you have to learn to get it done then. And so it's necessity that made me think and trust my feelings at four in the morning. You have to make a decision that could affect your career. And you had no choice. Mm. You had to do it. Right. Uh, you can't call up the group and say, I'm sorry, I'm going to miss the deadline. That's for sure you're out of the business. <laughs> right, right, of course. So so, so I developed a technique of forcing myself to come up with ideas, and uh, then the next morning I would choose the best one and, and go with it. And I guess I got lucky. You know, most of them worked. Well, was it luck or was it uh, your own tenacity or, you know? I will take both, both, both words, luck, tenacity, and uh, I hope some innate ability. Sometimes it's called talent, but I'm, I don't want to use the word because that's a little self-serving. But, uh, I understand. I hope that uh, my judgment and taste uh, of, you know, saw me through. This I learned from Stan. Actually, I never really thought of this until right now. Stanley... Uh, knew he saw a lot of movies. He he made sure he learned what he was talking about. He was certainly a magnificent professional photographer. Uh, he knew what the rules were of the commercial world and the artistic world, and he knew what his own taste was, and he combined them. And I think I learned from them how, at a certain point, you have to trust your own judgment. Yes. You know, I never gave Stanley credit for that, but I'm doing that right now. I learned from him that at a certain point, you can't go what the critics say, what the other composers have done. You have to go by your own taste and judgment. And Mm -hmm. I think I owe that to Stanley. That's beautiful. 
I'll be done. I never thought of that before. Wow. Well, hell, I'm still a, I'm just a kid. I'm just 90 and a half. <laughs> God bless. This is, this, yeah. is such, this is such a treat. I can't tell you how much we appreciate this. And uh, I, I'm sure people listening are really going to enjoy everything you've been sharing with us. It's just uh, nothing short of revelatory, Gerald. Thank you. Oh, okay. My pleasure. I, I think I mentioned something about the baseball game that I gave him with my ball club. Mm-hmm. Uh, did I tell you about that? Yeah, you guys played softball together, and he was in right field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the point of the story is that he wanted so badly to be a regular person, which he was not. He was you mm-hmm. know, too smart and all that stuff. And uh, I associate that also... He visited me once. I just had a kid, and there I was, you know, a composer, conductor, and a professional oboe sax player, and there I was, a father with a child. And he actually literally called me a great man. And by that he meant anybody who Mm. combined the values of, you know, normal family, kid, and all that stuff, and keep a career. Uh, He actually used that phrase, and I associate that with his wish to play a baseball game. He wanted to be a regular guy and a father, all that stuff. I'm combining those two, at least for the purposes of this interview, his quest, his desire, his need to feel like a regular guy, a father, a baseball player, that kind of stuff. Mm. I hope hope nobody thinks that I'm putting him down. I actually think I'm putting him up. No, of course not. No, I think that's very well put. Um, it, it is, it is very well put and, um, you know, the desire for someone exceptional to be just a regular person does seem to be in line with, uh, you know, a great deal of what we do know about Stanley just as, uh, you know, lifelong fans and enthusiasts of, uh, his work and also who he was as a person, as a, as a man. There, there came a point when I felt I had read, Every book, an article about the, how he made his films, and I became, I'm sure like a lot of other fans, more curious to know about who it was behind the camera, behind the scripts, and working on these, the, the man himself, you know, the, the, the logical evolutionary next step in our curiosity to want to uh, understand. So I, I think that's perfectly stated that he, you know, was an exceptional person, and he wanted to... Uh, be a regular guy. We, we interviewed a young filmmaker named Marshall Allman. And um, one of the questions we ask people sometimes is very simply, and there's, there's no correct answer. The question is, who is Stanley Kubrick? Mr. Allman said, and I'll never forget, he said he felt that when Stanley was young, he, he felt, uh, you know, that he was, uh, you know, a, a pretty regular person. But he had these things he wanted to accomplish, and at some point he likely might have said to himself, perhaps subconsciously, well, if I have to become a genius, then I'm going to become a genius. And I think, that's a, I think that's a very interesting take. I don't know if it's accurate or not, but it certainly yeah, would. I heard, him, I heard him say at one time, maybe when we were out having a beer or something, uh, well, what do you want to do with your life? Somebody yelled at sound and said, I want to make a string of masterpieces. Wow. I'd like to bring up two points. Uh, I don't, uh, I 
I think I read the book uh, by someone named Carr, Paths of Glory, but uh, I think Stanley added that ending of uh, the, the, the German girl singing to the French soldiers. Yes. Um, and I think that's, I think Stanley added that, and I think that was part of his humanity, his regular person, his people are people, even though they were just you know, shooting each other, trying to kill each other. Nevertheless, this song and their humanity tried to bring them together in that last song, which mm-hmm. I think was one of the most brilliant things I ever saw in movies. Uh, that and uh, the ending of, uh, of The Killing, which uh, was another part of Stanley, like uh, his uh, string of masterpieces, like it's going to be his way and it's going to be great. Um, when the cops were coming in, corner, cornering Sterling Hayden at the airport, mm-hmm. and his girlfriend, Colleen Grace, run, run, they're coming after you. Mm-hmm. And he said, what's the difference? Johnny, you've got to run. What's the difference? If it's not going to be my way as a man, successful rich man, what's the difference? Oh, yeah. That's another part of Stanley. My God, what a, what a pleasure this is. I get to tell these things I haven't thought about for 40 years. <laughs> well, I mean, the pleasure is equal. I mean, we're just uh, floored by your, uh, you know, unflappable memory and uh, your your openness and your candor and uh i am just grateful i i i don't have any problem with uh this being considered an interview but for my part like i'm just pleased if you feel like we're having a conversation yeah yeah is it being recorded i hope it is because i probably will forget what i've said in case you ask me to repeat oh for heaven's sake of course yes yes (laughs) this is all this is all uh on the record my good man okay well, okay, so speaking of Paths of Glory, um, this was uh, your ultimate collaboration, your final picture with Stanley, and uh, the film came out in 57, and you mentioned the uh, the final scene, and the uh, the German girl, of course, being Christian Harlan, Christian or Christiana, I'm not still 100% sure what the correct pronunciation is. He called her Christiana. He did. Okay. I thought it was Christiana. At, at any rate, um, I was just going to say to on that last thought that that was the first time I saw it. And every time since I get moved uh, almost to the point of tears, it's just one of the most. If you've ever seen uh, Charlie Chaplin's picture, City Lights. I adored that. Yeah. Okay. That that. The ending of Paths of Glory is on par with the ending of City Lights and that I cannot watch it and not have tears come to my eyes because it's just, as you said, the touch of humanity that it shows is uh, truly timeless. Yeah, Chaplin, that sums up Chaplin. She reaches, she feels her hand and knows that he was the one. Yep, exactly. Yeah, shivers down my spine. I'm so glad you got the reference. Well, yeah. that that the ending of Paths of Glory is, you know, I, I would put that up against, you know, anybody's argument for for best ending of a picture in cinema history because it is just so beautiful and poignant 
the way that her singing silences that whole room of of drunken soldiers. She has absolutely no talent at all, except that is, well, maybe a little uh, natural talent. Yeah. The little lady can't dance, she can't tell any jokes, and she can't balance rubber balls on her little nose. Oh. But she can sing like a bird. She has a throat of gold. I remember was that uh, the mistakes that they made in singing that song. Anyway, well, I, I'd love to hear about the mistakes, though. I'm yeah, please. Why don't you go ahead and tell us about that? Okay. Uh, uh, the song that uh, I asked uh, 
her name was George von Bloch. He was the production supervisor of Hasaglory. He he told me to. I said, well, you know, I had to conduct them. The, the soldiers singing that thing. And he says, well, the song, he says, everybody in Germany knows the Troya Hussar. It's like Yankee Doodle in the United States. Right. And they knew it so well that they sang it too well. So I, uh, Stanley asked me to build in some mistakes. So we did. I had set, set aside some of these things, some of the soldiers, to come in wrong at various places, and I cued them, gave them a hand cue, to start singing uh, in the wrong place. So we had to create the mistake in that song. Oh, wow. That's a really... I, I think that might be an exclusive, fellas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it probably was Stanley's idea, who, uh, as we have learned over the years, knew how, knew how to make a movie, and he needed the realism of a couple of imperfections in the singing, and we manufactured them. Was that done in the studio with the choir, or was that done on the set in Germany with the actors? No, it's done um, in, in Germany with the actors, or with extras. I don't know if they were the actual actors, but no, it was done in Germany. Mm-hmm. But it was done like a studio setup, you know, with the picture so it would be synchronized and everything. Fascinating. Well, we did the score. We recorded a score in Germany, too. What am I talking about? But yeah, she begins, she begins singing very slowly, and she's kind of, like, encouraged to pick it up. It's almost like she was being forced to sing. It was an odd scene. That's interesting to hear. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We uh, we had to cue them in. They didn't all want to sing because she was a French, you know, she was the enemy. And that was the beauty of the whole thing. The French girl is singing to the German soldiers. Mm-hmm. What about them? No, no, excuse me, the other way around. The right. German girl right. taking right. to the soldiers. Yeah. Another good touch. She sobers them up with a song. And 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 brings them together and sort of uh that's why by some people call it the best anti war movie ever made. Mm. These people who have spent four years killing each other were now singing together. Yeah, yeah. We uh, had the privilege to interview uh, David uh, Morley, who played young Brian Patrick Linden uh, to Ryan O'Neill's Brian Linden. And uh, I remember him telling us that his favorite Kubrick film is Paths of Glory. Wow, a lot of people's, yeah, yeah. It shows up on Turner Classics every few months. And it is one of those ones that in the early days of home video in the 1980s was overlooked while, you know, Kubrick's other pictures like The Shining and Clockwork Orange in 2001 were getting a lot of uh, reviewings on uh, home video by people. And Paths of Glory had uh, certainly not been on my radar until somebody brought it to my attention when I was still a young man. But uh, it, 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 fortunately, like Barry Lyndon, it uh, you know got its uh, its day in the sun, because now everyone you know points to it as another masterpiece in his string of masterpieces. Yeah, yeah. So, with your final collaboration with Stanley being uh, Paths of Glory, it actually you know uh, coincided, of course, with when Stanley met his third wife. Christiana, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, 
you met all three of his wives and each of them had worked on some of his films up to that point. Um, right. So if there's anything personal that you uh, would like to exclude, don't uh, feel pressured to share it, but we're just curious what your recollections are of uh, the three women that Stanley was married to and uh, what it was about Christiana that uh, ultimately made him so happy. Um, uh, I, I'm hesitating because it's it's gossip kind of thing, uh, but yes, I was in the middle of the breakup between Stanley and Ruth. Uh, in fact, they wouldn't talk to each other, and uh, they would leave a message for the other with me, and I would call them. Uh, and it, I, I, I don't want to talk about it, but it, it was okay. all beautiful. Okay. Well, for, forgive me. We can certainly leave anything out that uh, you don't like. I'm uh, uh, certainly not trying to pry into anything too personal. We're just uh, curious. Last week, maybe it was with you people, I gave an interview and I told the story of uh, Sally and Ruth and the ballet tour and everything. And I'm sorry I did. Uh, uh, okay. Well... Was it you, uh, not your last interview, but about a week and a half ago I did that, and I regretted it. I forgot who I gave that interview to. Maybe some it, of the... Was it The Guardian? Perhaps it was The Guardian. The yeah. Guardian magazine in uh, in the UK, because yeah. we, we didn't speak to you a week and a half ago. It was uh, this past Sunday we got the uh, honor to speak with you for the first time. Okay. Oh. I'm, 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 it was an honor, eh? Boy, I wish I recorded that. <laughs> and when I'm having a bad night, I'll play to say, hey, those people over in England said it was an honor. It but is an I, honor. If I could just, it wouldn't, I don't think it would be gossipy. Let me, it's, it's up to you to decide, but on the set of Pass of Glory, there was a point where, I mean, he met Chris, Christian, who he ended up living the rest of his life with on the set of Paths of Glory, and I remember uh, an interview with James Harris, the producer, where Kubrick said to him, "Hey, that you know, that's a very interesting woman there, or some variation of that." And I was just wondering if there was a similar experience you had, where before he he got up the courage to ask her out, that he mentioned something to you about her. Not really, no, no. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with James in that it, it's it's not gossipy to uh, be appreciative of how those two came to fall in love because I, I've seen even recent interviews with Christiana where she, you know, uh, poignantly and, you know, uh, mournfully describes uh, uh, the end of Stanley's life and, uh, and, and says, you know, with a, a great sense of reflection and peace in her heart that, uh, they had, uh, uh, I guess it was, uh, uh, 42 wonderful years together in her words. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ruth Sapaka was, uh, a, a, a top professional, very bright, beautiful, coming from Viennese aristocracy, uh, 
and maybe she was too independent as opposed to a more gentle, subservient uh, German wife. Um, that's just a guess, but uh, it may be something along that line that it was just easier for Stanley to be around Christiana. They they seem to have suited each other very well. Christiana very, uh, you know, jokingly pointed out that he would run into the room while she was painting uh, with a piece of music he wanted her to hear, and she would say, "Go away, Stanley. I'm I'm working." And they always understood that they had a shorthand that was like a, a mutual respect of each other as artists. Yeah, yeah. I I, I knew her in uh, in Germany. But uh, that was before they were officially connected. Mm-hmm. But we still had dinner just about every night in Germany, both with Christiana and with Stanley and myself, and occasionally George von Bloch, who himself was a German aristocracy. Mm-hmm. I recently read something that said Stanley purchased a ve- uh, an automobile on the set of Paths of Glory and liked it, and he, then he had it shipped back to the States. Do you remember anything about him buying a car there? <laughs> yeah, that does ring a bell. Huh. I don't know details about that. Why, why uh, were you asked to go to Germany? Was that normal in those days for a composer to travel abroad to the film set? Well, the, uh, the picture was made there and the budget was uh, partly financed by the uh, Bavaria film plots or something like that. Okay. Bayerische film plots. So I think the money was there, and uh, certainly the good musicians were there too. And uh, I was delighted to be flown over to uh, you know, one of the centers of uh, the world of music. Well, the music in Paths of Glory features so much percussion and brass. Um, I'm going to assume or guess that was your idea or was uh, that uh, a confab with you and Stanley coming up with that idea? We both loved the idea. There was the military connection with uh, percussion and the psychological connection. Mm. Like percussion is devoid of tonality. And somehow uh, those soldiers out in no man's land by themselves must have been one of those ghastly, terrifying experiences of loneliness and abandonment possible. Mm. And uh, Stanley and I both agree that a way to express that is to take out the tonality, just have raw, uh, atonal drum music, mm-hmm. which is the, the theory, or the aesthetic behind our choice of uh, that most of those scenes were shot just with uh, percussion, except for occasional marches or the Troya Hussar or La Marseillaise, etc. But it was an aesthetic decision to, to try to reproduce the feeling of alone on that in no man's land by yourself with, with soldiers dying all around you.
Well, you, you've mentioned uh, in uh, previous interviews years years ago that uh, your score for Paths of Glory you considered uh, exceedingly bleak, and uh, to paraphrase, you know, seemed to drain the humanity of the men, the characters we see on screen. So, how did you feel about Stanley's ending, um, which obviously seems to give some humanity back to them? Do you recall how you first felt when you saw that ending? I felt elated. I felt that having reproduced the horrors of war, he somehow got the Germans and the French together with that song. I thought it was brilliant. I, like, and I told him so. Yeah. Do, do you remember any of the specific discussions over things that you had with Stanley? Uh, namely, uh, you had mentioned elsewhere that at some point, it had gotten to a place where you almost had to rationalize every single note you'd composed yeah. to Stanley. I just gave you an example of that simple crash. Right, when right. Patrol was out in no man's land. Yeah, justified just about everything, in, including my uh, orchestrations for, uh, uh, for La Marseillaise. Mm. You know, how French should it be? Should it be, uh, should it sound... World War One, more stuff like that. So I had to justify, which was useful. You know, he forced me to make sure that my thinking and my musical taste was being governed by some kind of intelligence and mm. historical perspective, mm. which is one of the reasons he, he was Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> he worried about things like that. Mm. In light of uh, historical perspective, we're uh, curious to know if... Uh, Kubrick ever spoke with you about uh, his next project, uh, which, of course, was Spartacus. Yes, yes. Tell us about uh, that. We talked about it and said, you interested or something like that. And he actually uh, introduced me or got me together. Well, we had dinner with Kirk Douglas one night and, and talked about Spartacus. And I kind of assumed uh, that I might do it. And then uh, about a month or so later, when I was already back in the States, I got a call from Kirk and said, Jerry, I'm sorry, but we feel here that you're just not experienced enough to do Spartacus. Mm -hmm. So Kirk was the one who fired me. But yeah, we were actually talking about doing it. And that would have been fun. Sure. But it was Kirk Douglas who said no. I think it was, at that time, the most expensive film made. I guess he oh, did. maybe the, the finance people, whoever financed the, uh, was it MGM? I, I, I don't remember who. They, they say, who the fuck is Gerald Freed? I'm sorry. <laughs> but, you know. Hey, at least he gave you a phone call, so you didn't hear yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> finding out by going to the movies and seeing, you know, Alex North's name up there. Mm. Also, Alex North ain't, ain't a bad guy to lose a movie to. True that. Well, that's very humble and gracious to say. Uh, can I give you an extraneous story about losing a movie? Uh, it, it has of nothing to do with Kubrick, but uh, I was uh, in my uh, agent got me to interview Wallo Preminger about Anatomy of a Murder. Um, I did something. Yeah, I usually like to. You know, or, I don't like to, but I find myself arguing with at these meetings. Not about the, the music, but in addition to that, about the story itself. And I, I told uh, Otto Preminger that, you know, the, the stories, the characters are too complex. 
here I am, you know, this kid still in his when he's new, arguing with Otto Preminger about the script he wrote. Um, and he says, young man, this is not comedia dell'arte. People are complicated. Anyway, the joke uh, reversed itself because he liked the fact that I did that and he actually offered me the movie. Of, of you know, My agent actually filed a booking notice that I was going to do Anatomy of a Murder. It turned out that the original composer they wanted uh, who first said no, said yes. And they called me and said, uh, Jerry, I'm sorry, but you know, the original composer we wanted said yes. And uh, the point of the story is that I told you losing a score to Alex North, the person I lost this score to was Duke Ellington. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's the point <laughs> of the story. It's all right to lose a score to Duke Ellington. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Okay. Wow. The end of my stories. I got no more anecdotes for you. You can have a couple more anecdotes if you want. Don't worry about it. Share everything you got, please. Well, I'd love to hear about Gilligan's Island. I grew up watching that show. <laughs> Gilligan's Island? <laughs> you know, I do have a funny story about that. I was, was, they, it was interesting to do a story called The Wild and the Free. It's a comic, comedy about chimps. And uh, one of the producers and writers was Douglas Shorts. And uh, uh, the producers uh, read my credits, found out that I wrote music for Stanley Kubrick, and so says, this is a comedy. We don't want Gerald Reed. He doesn't know how to write comedy. So I told them to ask Doug Schwartz, who happened to be Sherwood Schwartz's nephew, who was the producer and writer. Of oh, Gilles. there you go. Yep. Yeah, for whom I did score for three years. <laughs> so uh, that's another story of getting a job of... They, the credentials for Gilligan's Island got me the job with the Wild and the Free about comedies. Otherwise, I wouldn't believe my comedy credentials. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling these anecdotes I haven't told in 30 years. All right. What else okay. you got? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so you did write for some really memorable TV shows like Man from Uncle. It's about time, of course, Gilligan's Island, which I grew up on on reruns, uh, but I, I must have seen every Gilligan's Island episode several times. Um, sure. But you you won your you know your first Emmy finally for uh, Roots, which was right. a landmark television event at the yeah. time. How did your writing process for Roots play out? Uh, once again, uh, it, it wasn't much of a process. Uh, I had done a lot of work for Stan Margulies and David Wolper, and they, of course, were the producers of Roots, uh, but they hired Quincy Jones as the obvious person you know, to do the score for Roots. Mm. I, had, I would have hired him had I been the producer. And then a few weeks before the, the, the first date the TV showing of Roots, I get a call from Stan Margulies and said, Jerry, we're going to give you $1,000 to keep your pencil sharp and your mouth shut. <laughs> oh, I said, does this have something to roots? And suddenly said, what did I just say? That's keeping my mouth shut. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the Quincy, for various reasons, did not come up with a theme, and they needed it, because the show was opening in three weeks, they had to advertise it. So I came in, wrote the main theme, finished episode number one, and did everything else in roots. Wow. Quincy had some writer's block problems, which 
that I'm not telling tales out of school. He, uh, everybody knows about it. Since he himself talked about that. I'm just curious as an aside, with all of the work you got in the years after working with Kubrick, do you recall if there were any uh, lingering influences of your time composing for Kubrick's films that uh, later came to bear on work you did for all these other projects? Yeah, what I mentioned uh, about 20 minutes ago, Kubrick's combination of respecting the traditions uh, of the field and the other writers, directors, uh, and playing off against your own taste. Mm. I learned that from him, uh, that balance. And it stood me in good stead. At what point do you say, oh, I'm sorry, this is the way it's always done, but maybe it's always done better. I've got to do it what I think. And where to draw the line, I learned from Stanley, and I am eternally grateful. Mm. I, I want to bring... Uh, uh, James in uh, for a question uh, specifically about uh, the Bronx Council of the Arts, which oh, yeah. uh, James has been involved with. Are you there, man? Yeah, I'm there. Well, we were just wondering if you may, perhaps you might have interest in us helping you get inducted. There is, it, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the Hollywood Walk of Fame, the stars on the sidewalk. Well, they kind of have a version of that in the Bronx. Really? Yankee Stadium in the courthouse where they have, it's not stars in the cement, but they have plaques up and they, every year going back to about, I think it was like 1996 when it began. And uh, they have induct, they induct about six or seven people every year who 
grew up in the Bronx. And we have a connection, sort of, to, to some extent. And if you were interested in getting inducted in there, we can get the ball rolling for you. Um, read off that li- the list of people who are in. Do you have that? Well, I mean, you're, you've got the likes of Regis Philbin, Burt Young, Rita Moreno, Gary Marshall, uh, Colin Powell, of course, Stanley Kubrick, uh, Johnny Pacheco, who was a famous Latin music composer. Uh, who and he was inducted the same year as Stanley, and more recently, uh, the likes of uh, uh, Ace Freely, the guitar player from the group Kiss, and uh, uh, more significantly, perhaps to Kubrick's universe, uh, the famous astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson was inducted. They're all Bronx boys like you. Hey, twenty years on Kingsbridge Road. <laughs> I'll send well, all they can do is say no. Never heard of him. <laughs> all right, we'll do. I will do. I'll get in touch with them and and tell them you're in Connecticut now. <laughs> That's where you are, right? You're in Connecticut, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I say, I say, we should go for it. I'll clean my toes before I leave my footprints in this mess. <laughs> <laughs> you know the name um, Johnny, Johnny Pacheco? Because you, you were speaking earlier about working with some Latin musicians. Do you know him? Uh, I know the name. I don't know him. Okay. I, I worked with a band called the uh, Pupi Campo. Do you know no. one of the Latin people who was big in the 50s and 40s and 50s? Mm. I heard of that. Uh, Real name, Poopy. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably with an I on the end, not the letter Y, I'm guessing. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a little too in your face. Yeah, you both know New York, don't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you remember looking across uh, the Hudson River into Jersey and saw sure. the sign uh, Bill Miller's Riviera, the, the nightclub right near the George Washington Bridge? That's where I played with Poopy Combo. Was that in Fort Lee? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There you go. They had. They used to be. That was Hollywood before Hollywood. There was there was a film industry there, and the term the term cliffhanger comes from those steep rocks on the west side of the uh, the George oh. Washington Bridge. The the Palisades. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't either. Wow. Yeah, I happened to. Uh, been, uh, I acquired a severe case of poison ivy from climbing, well, climbing those palisades. <laughs> so I, I remember them. Well, I mean, the Bronx uh, Council for the Arts also inducted, has inducted some, uh, you know, well-known musicians from the Bronx, uh, uh, jazz flautist Dave Valentin. Valentin? Valentin? Oh, yeah, yeah. He was inducted and, in 2000. And maybe Stan Getz was from the Bronx. I know I know he's from New York, but I don't know if it was the Bronx. Oh, I can tell you another graduate of Dewitt Clinton High School, who to me is a major figure in music. His name is Dean Dixon, and he was the first African-American conductor of a symphony orchestra. And I played with him when, in my um, young days with the American Youth Orchestra. We move forward now. Next on our program come musical terms. Musical terms is the stuff that lets you talk about music and discuss music with the words that belong to that form. So, to our first musical term, legato. 
I think one might say that legato is the smooth flowing or connected flowing of music from tone to tone. Our next musical term is staccato, and that would be the short playing or disconnected playing of music. Our next term is spiccato, meaning an even shorter playing of the notes, mainly available only on the strings, and meaning primarily a bouncing or throwing of the bow across the strings. The next musical term is pizzicato, meaning the picking or plucking of the strings on the instruments, and that naturally means it's absolutely limited to the strings. Our next musical term is scale, and that is like the stepladder of music, going step after step, either up or down. There are many kinds of scales, just as there are many kinds of stairs or ladders. We will use only the major scale and for only one octave. Here, the descending, ascending, and then descending major scale. And when you, you might suggest their name, Dean Dixon, he went to Clinton like in the early 40s, and uh, he's historically important, uh, an African-American symphony conductor. He wound up, I think, conducting the Oslo Symphony, something, some, something in Scandinavia. He couldn't get a job in this country for obvious reasons. I think he was, uh, uh, Stephen is telling me, I think he was born in Harlem. Yep. Dean Dixon, yeah, just uptown. Yep. Well, they, the Bronx also uh, inducted Ray Barreto in 2002, uh, the famous uh, 50s singing groups, the Chantels in 2002, and the Chiffons in 05. And uh, the legendary Bobby Darren was from the Bronx. He was inducted in 2004. All right. Okay. <laughs> so you'd be in, uh, you know, some, some pretty decent company and uh, holding your own, to say the least. One d distinction about the Bronx, Walk of Fame and the Hollywood Walk of Fame is, you know, they have they have to pay to be not the people who are in the, who get the um, their star in the sidewalk. They have to pay like a hundred thousand dollars for that. Yep, <laughs> the Bronx is free. The Bronx is free, exactly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I was going to say my final offer is ninety nine thousand. <laughs> no, the Bronx isn't running a racket like Hollywood is, shaking you down for a gold star that people trample on. Yeah, there will be a lot of people who would be very pleased to know that Dean Dixon's uh, name came up once again after, you know, half a century. Yeah. Was, I'm glad you brought that up. It's very important. Yeah, I know he went to Clinton, uh, so he may have lived in the Bronx for at least three or four years. Mm -hmm. Or maybe he traveled from Harlem. I don't know. He conducted, if I'm not mistaken, the uh, Mexican National Symphony Orchestra during the 1968 Olympic Games. Dean Dixon? Yeah. Oh, maybe. Oh, the, oh, that's cool. Okay. Isn't it? I, I knew him from the American Youth Orchestra. Right. Even beforehand. Yeah. Well, one of the questions uh, 
we have from Mark Lentz, uh, who does such great research for us. He's curious about the score you wrote for To the Moon and Beyond, which aired at uh, uh, the 1964 World's Fair, which yeah. Stanley watched while he was preparing to make 2001. <laughs> somebody, one of the technical people from that movie, to work on 2001. Well, a Alex North was, of course, famously commissioned to write and record the score, but ultimately it was not used. Right. Um, was there any thought given at any time to you composing the, the score for 2001? I hope so, but uh, I can't prove it. Mm. But nobody ever asked me. I see, yeah. Well, we had to ask. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you uh, know Alex North uh, around that time, or yeah. were you aware that you were aware that he was uh, working on the score for two thousand one? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, the news got around the industry sure. at that time. Yeah, we knew each other. We weren't friends, but we knew we knew each other. He was more of a superstar than I was. Mm. That's very humbly put. Of, of great so-called the genius composers from New York that were brought to Hollywood. I think mm -hmm. the first one was Bernard Herrmann, mm -hmm. uh, and then was Alex North, and then was Elmer Bernstein, and then five years after Elmer was, was I, the, the, the new young composer was going to save Hollywood movies. And it's a great reputation to have. I got a lot of work because of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it was uh, some mythology about these composers from New York that were special or something. And those the, those composers I named before me certainly were pretty damn special. Uh, and I think I profited from being from New York. I wasn't going to mention Kingsbridge Road until you brought up the subject of getting my uh, feet in the cement up there. <laughs> well, I, I think it's certainly something to uh, uh, be proud of, not that we have a choice in our place of birth or where we our parents raised us, but... It is true that uh, in, in large parts of the U.S. and perhaps elsewhere, that if you come from New York or the, 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 the tri-state area, that your reputation can precede you as someone who gets the job done. Uh, one of the uh, alumni from my college where I graduated Emerson is Jay Leno. And um, 
when oh. he went out when he went out to L.A. to uh, take over the Tonight Show, I heard through some uh, friends who had graduated that went on to work on the Tonight Show that Leno and uh, other other people <clears throat> in Hollywood were very partial to hire people from New York because they had. Uh, uh, a reputation that preceded them that like they're they're going to work 18 20 hour days they're going to get the job done they're not going to complain oh in addition to the qualities you just mentioned about new yorkers we also have the ability to survive getting mugged in a dark alley <laughs> <laughs> it, in in 76 you 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 were nominated for an oscar for best original score for the film birds do it bees do it right and in that year, there were, if I'm not mistaken, in, in your category, there were several other great composers with memorable scores. You had The Wind and The Lion from Jerry Goldsmith, uh, Jack Nietzsche's uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Alex North's. Go on. Jaws. Yep. Oh, ask, ask me my uh, Oscar story about uh, sitting in the audience that night. Tell us about your recollections of... Uh, of being at the Oscars that night. There was no chance of me winning up against those really good and major scores to major movies. So I sat there kind of quietly, you know, enjoying the fact of being there. They gave me an aisle seat. And then my fantasy took over. About a half hour before the announcement, <laughs> I started to figure, well, of course, they gave me an aisle seat because they, they knew that the, all those big fancy pictures we're going to cancel the votes out, and I was going to win. So for a half hour, I was absolutely uh, two feet off the ground because I knew I was going to win because Jaws and the rest of them were going to cancel each other out. Well, I was wrong. <laughs> but I did have a half hour of glory. It was in fantasy, but who's counting? That's so cool. <laughs> I suspect if you're going to lose to... Uh, you know, anyone losing to uh, Jaws and John Williams score probably, well, it probably didn't soften the blow, but yeah, maybe in, maybe in time. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good score he wrote. Well, he, he always does a good job. Well, I mean, again, there were, you know, some considerable uh, competitors that year. Uh, Nietzsche's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Alex North had a score for Bite the Bullet. Uh, some fantastic company to be in. Yeah, that's why I thought they would cancel each other out and I would win. <laughs> yeah. And hey, if, I don't ask you about your fantasies. <laughs> <laughs> but I did ask you about this one, so there. <laughs> <laughs> fair play, sir. Fair play. That's hilarious. Uh, Speaking of fantasies, in every one of the screenplays I'm writing and stage plays, one of which won a competition in New York uh, just this past year. They all have fantasy characters. In one of them, this violinist has a fantasy that the ghost of Bach came back and uh, directed his life. Uh, and another one, this, uh, this guy at a jazz concert, uh, a, a, a remake of a 19, famous 1938 jazz concert uh, where he did something backstage. He got wild. He started the fire and he scarred the face of, the, of his girlfriend. Mm. And uh, 25 years later, the remake, uh, 
no matter how hard they try to prevent it, uh, there's a, a ghost that comes back and forces him to do the same thing all over again. Mm. So I, I'm into fantasy ghosts. That's anyway, this has nothing that's... to do with uh, Kubrick, but uh, except I bet he would have loved these stories. He might have even tried to do one of them, but uh, we don't were, know. Were you, were you ever a member of the Academy? I was in there since 1977 when I first came to Los Angeles. My agent got me in, yeah. And you remain in the Academy? Wow. Still am. I still get 200 movies. They've started coming in for this season. Mm. And you get to vote on them. That's, I mean... Right. That's yeah, extremely you can bribe cool. Bribe me up for any movie? I'm open for bribes. <laughs> You've got them like in a trench coat. You're like standing on a street corner there in Connecticut, like with your trench coat open. Hey man, want some movies? Exactly. Want some movies? You got DVDs on one side of the trench coat and a bunch of used watches on the other side. I also use my trench coat to flash people on the street. <laughs> I saw that coming. <laughs> saw that coming. Oh my gosh. Well. We we would be loath to uh, uh, omit asking you about Star Trek because although it's not Kubrick related, it's all within Kubrick's universe, so to speak. So what are what are your recollections? Share uh, with us what you have about working on Star Trek, Gerald. Uh, once again, a little bit like working on one potato, two potato, and working on roots. It was almost like a mission. The Star Trek stories. Where they were set in outer space, but they were serious reflections on a lot of the uh, important emotional currents of us people here on Earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt that, and the people, you know, Bob Justin and Gene Roddenberry, sort of felt that too. And I felt kind of honored working on it. But mm-hmm. it was special. And of course, they let me do imaginative things, so it was nice. Also, Lenny Nimoy and I were sort of friends. Oh, that's interesting. He was from New York, as you know. Yeah. In, 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 in that time that you worked with uh, uh, Star Trek, it sounds like you took away something rather personal from it, the way you reflect upon the, the stories touching on the human current in all of us on Earth, as you said. I yeah, think for cool. example, uh, do you remember the Star Trek episodes called Shore Leave? Yeah. Yeah, they had this, 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 Magician on some planet had the power to read your inner personal thoughts. Of course, of course. Your dreams. So that sort of sounds like one of my fantasy stories. (laughs) (laughs) Captain's Log, Stardate 3025.8. A planet which seems to be paradise is chosen for a shore leave. But things of fantasy, which are undeniably real, suddenly appear. Sulu! Enjoy yourself, Captain. It's an interesting planet. I believe you'll find it quite pleasant. You'll have no problems. I swear I heard someone moving around. Don't talk like that. <laughs> well, I am on surely. And so am I. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> All right, Jimmy boy. (laughs) 
I'd be happy if I could just have those x-ray glasses that, you know, yeah. let me see through ladies' clothing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a terrible joke. That joke is not going to fly in this thing. the same level as my trench coat joke. (laughs) (laughs) Well, going back in time again to, you know, uh, over 40 years ago at the 76 Oscars, uh, which we've discussed, uh, Leonard Rosenman won an Oscar for uh, music adaptation, the category of best music adaptation for Barry Lyndon. Did you know Leonard Rosenman at the time? Yeah, yeah. He was another one of these New York genius composers who's going to save Hollywood. Mm. Yeah, we were friends, actually. What comparisons do you think you could draw between uh, your work with Stanley and some of the other directors you worked with later on, such as, like, say, a Robert Aldrich? Um, Aldrich, to me, was kind of a, a good... Hollywood type uh, producer. And the only one I could think of was Larry Pierce, the director of One Potato, Two Potato, mm-hmm. who was kind of a New York type and sort of a Kubrick type, right? And sensitive and um, innovative. Uh, and Paul Mazursky was another one. Well, Paul Mazursky was, uh, he worked for Kubrick in, as an actor and also hung around with the, the Greenwich Village crowds that I earlier described. Um, so those two I put in categories with Stanley and who else? Uh, those are the only two that come to mind. Mm. You worked with Corman, right? Roger Corman? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, he uh, he wasn't really in that category. Oh, no. <laughs> no. But he was a character then. Oh, yeah. But I do have a, an interesting story about him. Uh, uh, he had... Uh, one of his things that he did was he could get new young talent together, uh, so this director with this actor, and uh, he sized me up and, and lined me up with some director I never heard of. And I was busy at the time. I said, Roger, thank you, but uh, I don't know this guy. Uh, I'll, I'll pass on this movie. <laughs> uh, the punchline was that this uh, uh, director producer was Francie Coppola. So that was mm-hmm. one of the two or three mistakes I made in my career, <laughs> turning down an invitation to do a picture with Francie Coppola. Interesting. What what year would that have been? And what film? The picture I did for Roger was, I think, Cry Baby Killer, the one that was... Yeah, you no, know, no, I'm sorry. I meant, uh, which one were you contacted to uh, work with Coppola? On? Oh, don't know. I never even got into that. Okay. I just said no. Janine's Rainbow, maybe, something, I think, was an early one he did. The Rent People. remember. Anyway, I still had a pretty good career, but, uh, you know, <laughs> to miss up an opportunity like that uh, was kind of, it wasn't short-sighted because I didn't know who he was at the time. Sure. Well, we know from uh, uh, the letters that you had mentioned earlier that you you continued to correspond with Stanley uh from for years did you ever talk with him in regard to scoring uh in general or scoring any of his later films um well we did about Spartacus and uh yeah heavy metal jacket I think we talked about that oh for full metal jacket 
Full Metal Jacket, yeah. Interesting. What are your recollections of that? Well, his daughter, or rather his stepdaughter, wrote the electronic music for that, as I remember. And then the rest he used pre-recorded music. That, that was uh, Vivian, who was his, uh, his youngest. Yeah. Yeah, his bi and, and she was his, but she is his biological daughter. She lives in the states uh, nowadays, yeah, and yeah. Um, and she used the uh, the the moniker Abigail Mead. Oh yeah, yeah. As composer on that, that's actually seen a, a recent re-release on uh, vinyl LP, the Full Metal Jacket soundtrack, and. Uh, one one side are the songs like Chapel of Love, and the other side are uh, Vivian's experimental pieces. Well, Stephen, uh, I want to bring you in because Stephen's been listening uh, to a 1999 album uh, called Doctor Strange Love. You know, and there's a new box set. Uh, Stephen, you have a question about that, I believe. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I got a, C a CD album quite a few years ago, and it was called Doctor Strange Love: Music from the Films of Stanley Kubrick. Um, right. And I believe you, comp well, you comp obviously composed some of the music on that. The album was, um, it took about two years to make, I believe, and was actually ready for release, coincidentally, the same month as Stanley's uh, Untimely Death. Um, I think that's when the, when the, the, the album came out, uh, which would have been um, around March uh, 99. Uh, can you tell us about uh, the creation of that uh, album and how you got involved with it? I got involved with it, I'm sorry to say, by uh, reading about it in Variety and going out and buying the album. I had nothing to do with the compilation of that. It was, I don't even know if it was Stanley who chose those things, but I had excerpts from all five of the movies I did, as I recall, on that. And uh, I was very pleased to be on it. Yeah, well, it's got you. It's got some. Uh, it's got some notes in there from you, as though you kind of um, were the main man on there. It's kind of got a little small interview with you on the sleeve notes. So that's obviously uh, not correct. <laughs> well, maybe I'm not remembering. Probably. Let me see if I could find that album. And look at those. Is it on the album? Well, I've got it on. Oh. C I've got it on CD. I'm not sure if it came out on vinyl. Uh, but it was a CD, and it was called Doctor Strange Love: Music from the Films of Stanley Kubrick. And it had uh, yeah. it had music from all the films, but it had kind of um, right in the middle of the album. It had uh, all all the pieces that you did for Stanley. Yeah, I, I know what I'm looking for. Hit on my shelf, which is a mess, and the label fell off. Oh, I can't seem to find it. Anyway, uh, they may have interviewed on that, and I don't remember. But I don't remember being involved in putting it together. Found the the, the album. Uh, I have it. It's called 2001, The Music from Stanley Kubrick. Uh, oh, yeah. The Killing, Killer's Gifts, Fear and Desire, Two Customer Passive and Day of the Fight. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably the same album. It must have been renamed at some point. Uh, I'm looking for program notes here. Let me open this up. Gerald, it seems to say that you kind of re-recorded some re-recording sessions in Prague in 1998. You it says in the notes that you re-recorded uh, your tracks in Prague in, uh, in 1998, just before this album came out, with Paul B uh, Paul Bateman and the City of Prague Philharmonic. Oh yes, oh yes. 
Oh, yes, I was there. I actually went to Prague for that. I forgot. Uh, I don't know which is the original and which is... Oh, there. oh, I finally got it out. Another program notes. A note from Gerald Fried, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I did go to Prague for that recording. This is a very general question, and you've touched upon it in many ways, but... Uh... Mark posed it. It's it's very simple and to the point. What, what did you and Stanley have in common? Oh, I think we were both first-generation uh, Americans from Eastern European Jewish parents. We both were interested sort of in the arts. We had the same age. We were the same age group. We were practically identical. Uh, Stanley's Alexander Singer and myself were all born within three months of each other in 1928, and was, and interested in the arts and music and uh, film. And Stanley and I were of of all those people. We were uh, married early. Stanley didn't have children, and he didn't seem to be interested at that time. No, I, I think just general same age group, same uh, uh, background. Um, same uh, professional cultural interests and about does it and sports yes we played tennis quite a bit and that one baseball game so okay the last time that we spoke with you Gerald um, you've also mentioned that in more recent years you've become somewhat of a composer of stories not just music and you've written plays and movie screenplays on the subjects of mystical occurrences and fantasies, as you mentioned, and one of them is set in the jazz world, one of them is set in the classical world. You want to share share with our listeners a bit about those? The one in the classical world is called the Bach Double, and it's the story of this Puerto Rican street musician who uh, works for pennies and coins on the steps of the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Do you know the one on Fifth Avenue and 82nd Street? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, he's on the steps there working for, you know, Penny's just, you know, being a street musician. And the uh, 16-year-old girl who lives in the penthouse across Fifth Avenue happens to be the daughter of the world's greatest violinist. I happen to know Yasha Heifetz, and I sort of tailored this character on Yasha Heifetz, mm. who was kind of a tough guy, and anyway, they fall in love with each other, the 16-year-old girl and this 18-year-old Puerto Rican street musician. The, the father finds out, sees them flirting, and goes crazy. The daughter of, of Lust, the world's greatest violinist, doesn't hang out with a Puerto Rican street musician. Anyway, this street musician figures out from overhearing conversation that uh, her father is so jealous and so insanely in love with his daughter that we can't admit it, that he is planning for her, uh, after her uh, debut recital, he is going to have a, 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 a ritual, a, a suicide a murder ritual. This he, he uh, at the Wartburg Castle in Eisenach, Germany, which is Bach's birthplace, that they're going to play a concert there. They're going to play the Bach double with Herbert von Karajan of the Berlin Philharmonic, after which he's going to take up, up to the roof, and uh, he's going to join Bach in playing a trio recital, uh, recital. 
boxes, of course, in his fantasy, but that means uh, there's this Puerto Rican street kid overhearing conversations, figured out what he means. He hears things like top of the highest point of the Wartburg Castle, playing trios with Bach, who died three, you know, lived, was born 300 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, he figures out that this is a, a suicide murder ritual. He's going to take his the 16-year-old girl he loves off the roof with him. Rather than lose her, he's going to kill himself and her. And Bach is the person, his fantasy Bach, is the one who set this up. So he, this this 18-year-old Puerto Rican street kid, has to get to Germany and stop this. So mm. that's what that's what this movie about. Uh, the other one is about, uh, did I mention the, the remake of a 1938 famous jazz concert 25 years later and a backstage accident happened and no matter how tr- hard they try to prevent it, it starts to happen again and they can't seem to stop it. So those are the two screenplays I'm working on now. Oh, I'd be fascinated to see those. I think everyone would. If they sound really cool. From your mouth to... Uh, Louis B. Mayer's ear. <laughs> <laughs> is this a new endeavor, or have you done screenplays before? I No, I wrote plays before. Like I said, one of which was actually uh, done and will be done in New York in a year. But I've had a lot of plays done both in Los Angeles and in Santa Fe. And in New York, as a matter of fact. So I had a couple of things done at the Signature Theater, right in New York on 42nd Street. And I decided I really want to write movies. So uh, I'm in the delicious position of being a neophyte writer at the age of 90 and a half. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the 90-year-old neophyte. That sounds like a stage play in itself. <laughs> right. Anyway, if they ever get done or forever this production of them, I'll invite you to see them. Uh, you know, Either one of those might make... Uh, interesting movies this the stage play that i had done you know that 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 uh, they asked me to do in new york uh, do you know the hudson guild theater on 26th street mm-hmm. well it's it's supposed to be going in there it's about the oh. story of uh of this young uh, college student who sort of in love with the professor who's an uh, an evolutionary professor and she believes, once again, fantasy. She believes that she's the divine spark. She's in charge of the moment when human beings are conceived. So she controls the sperm race and uh, the lady eggs dance and how the sperm fight to get the lady egg. And <laughs> when the winning sperm get there, she consecrates them with the divine spark because that's her job. So that's another one of my fantasies. How cool is that? <laughs> wow oh, I get it. are you, you know, kidding me I love it I'd pay to see that hand over fist <laughs> alright if you run into any producers who might be interested I'd be delighted to show them the scripts I'm calling Louis B. Mayer right now <laughs> oh you're into fantasy too okay. yes I've got him on my existential phone <laughs> it's, it's a new device Steve Jobs just handed it down from beyond the uh, infinite I, I bet Stanley would have been interested in one of those scripts. You know what? I, I in all seriousness, Gerald, you you should consider sending the producer to uh, sending the script to uh, Stephen because Stephen is a credited film producer in the UK. It's just an idea, but uh, you know it would be in safe hands, and I'm sure he would love to see it. 
You, you can trust us. Oh, tr- okay. Um, Steve, are you, is he still on the line? Yes, I'm here, Gerald. Oh, would you like to look at one of these screenplays? Absolutely. Yeah, because you, yeah, you've got my email, haven't you? Because we've been emailing each other. Oh, yeah, I'd love you to send one through, uh, or both of them, and I'd love to read them. Okay, give me a few days to get organised and I will send it to you. Oh, how nice. Fantastic. Wow. So cool. I just want, uh, uh, you know, nothing more, nothing less than, you know, front row tickets at the premiere for all of us and backstage passes and a a big tray of those little sandwiches. (laughs) Absolutely. Gerald, we're going to let you go, but I I have to ask uh, a couple uh, final questions, which are very personal ones. I I don't get to ask often enough, but uh, for folks who actually knew Stanley, uh, I have two special questions I love to ask when I get the chance. The first is, can you tell us about a time that Stanley made you laugh really hard? Hmm. Or vice versa? There were times. I remember we did a lot of laughs together. I remember uh, when we were working in Germany, there were some real Prussian types that were so Prussian they were comical, and I know we made jokes about them. Mm. Let me think about it. If I think of laughs, that's writing it down, laughs between Stanley and me, and I'll get back to you. My other question uh, is, if you can recall, one singular piece of really good advice that Stanley gave you, or better phrased, what is the best advice that Stanley ever gave you? I think what I intimated before, to make sure that if you figure out how to proceed professionally, make sure you factor in your own taste uh, with the industry norms uh, and your contemporary uh, contributions. You make it uh, your own. Mm. That stands out. That's brilliant. Uh, it's beautiful. Well, the last question uh, we have has no correct answer. And very simply put, my friend, who is Stanley Kubrick? That's a fair question, actually. Uh, I think he is someone with unusual gifts, and he knew it. Stanley Kubrick said he is somebody with remarkable intuition as our internal emotional and intellectual mechanisms. He could see and feel into people's brains. That's, that's, that's the answer, my best answer to your question, who is Stanley Kubrick. That's a beautiful and answer. Introspection beyond the norm. Introspection beyond the norm. I love it. Yeah, and as this is it, he was kind of a nice guy. You know, we were friends. Yeah, a regular guy, as he said. Which is another thing. Stanley got things done. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> oh man, I, I I don't know what to say. It's just been a real treat, a real honor, and uh, just bottom line, it's just been really cool. Um, because because I, I, I think you're a genius, sir, but I also have gotten the chance to, to chat with you as a, as, as a regular guy. And that is... <laughs> Thank you, thank you. And, and I'm going to be chasing up those scripts as well next week, your two scripts. 
Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what a hoot. Yeah. That's great. Okay. A pleasure, and we'll uh, let's stay in touch. That's great. Thank you, Gerald. It's been fantastic. We really appreciate this. And and it's really going to help towards Stanley's legacy, which is what we're trying to uh, keep, you know, keep alive and let people know about. So thank you for that. That's a good goal. OK, talk to you whenever. OK, thanks, Gerald. Thanks, 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 Gerald. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Take care. See you soon. Gerald Freed was indeed quite a guy. We really hope that you enjoyed this special tribute we put together to one of cinema and TV's musical greats. He was a real bright spark, as you can tell. Just a reminder, he was also over 90 years old when we spoke to him, proof that age really is just a number. I mean, he was funny, sharp, knowledgeable, disarming, down-to-earth, and above all, friendly and warm. He was the kind of guest who made Stephen and James and I earn our keep because he kept us on our toes the whole time. For that alone, we remain grateful. Now, sadly, despite the efforts of many in the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, led by James Marinaccio, we never did manage to get Jerry inducted into the Bronx Walk of Fame, which is a shame because Gerald was a perfect fit for the Bronx Walk of Fame. Like Stanley and Gerald, James is Bronx-born, and he did manage to single-handedly get Kubrick inducted into the Bronx Walk of Fame back during a year which, of course, has no significance for friends and fans of Stanley, 2001. It seemed like it should be easy to get Gerald in, but for reasons we might politely chalk up to turnover at the Bronx Overall Economic Development Corporation during the COVID years, it did not get done. Gerald had still lived nearby and enthusiastically gave his pre-approval. I mean, he could have saved the Bronx transportation and lodging expenses alone. A presentation was given to them with direct contact info. I mean, just saying the guy who did the music for Roots should have been enough. But unfortunately, they did not respond to numerous appeals for Jerry's plaque. It's a shame since Gerald Freed definitely deserves a plaque on the Bronx Walk of Fame. We still hope it'll happen one day. Thanks to James Marinaccio and especially Jerry's son, Joshua Freed, for setting up the interview. Thanks also to Stephen Rigg, James Marinaccio, and Mark Lentz for their invaluable research. Hey, check out our two Facebook groups, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and Kubrick's Universe. We also have two great and very in-depth YouTube channels, again, for the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and Kubrick's Universe. <gasps> We've set up a Patreon page. Please... Go to patreon.com, search for Kubrick's Universe, and support us. It's that simple. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. We offer five levels of support, starting at just one English pound or one U.S. doll hair per month. That's less than a fancy establishment's price for one bourbon and advocat a year. We also have higher levels of contribution that offer extra perks. Go check it out. And Kubrick's Universe is, of course, the world's only continuously running podcast devoted solely to Stanley Kubrick, the artist, the visionary, 
and The Man. With your support, we will be able to keep bringing new content, in-depth interviews, premieres and exclusives, and the treasure trove of stories that never seem to stop bursting out of Kubrick's universe. So please, help us keep the show ad-free and independent. Just click the Patreon link in the show notes, or head over to Patreon. That's... And search Kubrick's universe. Hey, shout out to our inaugural Patreon supporters. Thanks a lot, guys. We will now leave you with a selection of Gerald Freed's amazing scores for Kubrick films, starting with March of the Gladiators from the short film Day of the Fight, released in 1951. Next up is A Meditation on War from Gerald and Stanley's first feature film, Fear and Desire, released in 1952.
In 1955, Kubrick's second feature film, 
Killer's Kiss was released. Here is Gerald Freed's Murder Amongst the Mannequins. Nineteen fifty-six saw the release of the fourth collaboration of Freed and Kubrick with *The Killing*. Here is the main title, *The Robbery*, from that film. Thank you. 
final film that Gerald and Stanley worked on together was 1957's Paths of Glory. Here is a piece of music entitled The Patrol. Until next time, this is your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong, saying thanks so much for listening, everybody. And to Gerald Freed, thank you for so many indelible contributions to the world's most truly universal language, music. As Stanley himself once said, quote, A film should be more like music than fiction. It should be a progression of moods and feelings. The theme, what's behind the emotion, the meaning, all that comes later. End quote. So, see you later, Jerry. Godspeed. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Listening to the Stanley Kubrick podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out.
This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.